4: Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. Ryan Grimm is in for crystal ball. It's great to see you, man.
1: And to make this show even more amazing, what we decided to do is stack a live
4: audience. With Trump supporters who are gonna
1: hoot and holler. (laughs) all show long. It's going to be amazing. It's
4: going to be incredible. <laughs> uh, Ryan is referencing a CNN town hall last night, of which we have the best and the greatest moments from all of that, multiple different avenues that we're going to be talking about. Uh, so everybody, please don't worry. It's not just about Trump. Uh, we have the, some of the more insane moments about Stopless the Steal, e. Carroll, and all of that. Then we're actually going to talk about policy, but the debt ceiling, and we're going to talk about abortion, then finally his answer on Ukraine before we do uh, some segments about Title 42, about the ending today. Um, at the U.S.-Mexico border and the migrant crisis and everything that we know about that. And then finally, uh, a little bit of updates on the Tucker Carlson media empire, but also some Elon Musk uh, invitations to Don Lemon. I'm actually doing a monologue about mammograms. I decided that since Crystal's gone, it's the bro show. (laughs) We might as well do a monologue by a male about breast cancer. Uh, You will be shocked. Uh, by the way, about some of the things that I have uncovered. Thank you. Shout out to Dr. Vinay Prasad, actually, for uh, flagging this to me. Some of you will be very, very interested in this. It's a big story about big pharma and all of that. And then- I have Senator J.D. Vance, actually, who's going to be joining us here in the studio. I always do have the need to do this. Full disclosure, uh, Vance, longtime personal friend. That said, he is joining the show. We will be talking to him about the Railway Safety Act that he introduced about East Palestine, Ohio, and we will be getting all the details from that in which he will be talking about the Republicans in the Senate caucus who do not support that bill, and we'll get into it. But I always do feel the need to do the disclosure, Ryan. And that actually gets us, uh, before we get to all of the Trump insanity from last night, over at CNN, I just want to say once again, thank you all so much to the premium subscribers who've been signing up, helping us out as we're rebuilding our studio, getting to a point where uh, CNN is not the only place that has to do a town hall uh, with the former president, has that capacity. If you want to see the ability to do things like that, um, you can sign up breakingpoints.com to become a premium subscriber. Next week, we're very excited. Uh, We'll very likely have RFK Jr. here live in the studio, of which we will be able to do a long interview. And this is exactly the level up of what we want to get to. That's why we're getting the new studio. That's where we're building uh, out our infrastructure, getting amazing partners like Ryan Ken Klippenstein, who broke that incredible story. So many other people that we're uh, proud and able to support because of all of you. So once again, Everybody monthly, take, yearly, yeah. take, uh,
1: take a good look. Take a good look at these bricks because uh, yeah. th- this might be it for them.
4: That's right. You're not. Yeah. Listen, I I love the bricks. Actually, Crystal more than anybody loves the bricks. We'll throw uh, her under uh, the bus for the bricks. Yes, yeah, the bricks are gone, most likely. We'll see. Maybe they'll make a comeback. Uh, I actually fought for them, but we'll see. All right, let's go ahead and get to Trump. What do we have, Ryan? Uh, A moment of complete insanity, 70 straight minutes of Trump almost live on CNN. The clashes, the fact-checking, the stop the steal, so much happened. Uh, So we decided to start and break it down um, by, I guess, not only the timeline of how it began, but really in terms of content. First, we are gonna start with stop the steal and with January 6th. Obviously, stop the steal on January 6th, noose around the neck of the Republican Party um, on the general election. But as I have always said here, with Trump, you get exactly what you see. And here's the thing. He's not going to change his mind, no matter how many times you ask him whether the election was not stolen or not, no matter how many times you want to fact check him live. And as you can see, not only from his answers, he believes this stuff in terms of every possible conspiracy theory. But second, the Republicans who are in the audience, they believe him too. Take a listen.
5: I actually say we did far better in that election. Got the most uh, that anybody's ever gotten as a president of the United States. Uh, I think that uh, when you look at that result and when you look at what happened during that election, uh, unless you're a very stupid person, you see what happens. A lot of the people <laughs> a lot of the people in this audience, and maybe a couple that don't, but most people uh, understand what happened. That was a rigged
4: election. That, by the way, just so everyone knows, that was the very first answer to the very first question. Now, I do wanna say, uh, we'll bring this up later, with the focus groups, everybody was like, oh, he immediately, listen, they're the ones who asked him about stop and steal, and they spent the first half an hour on all of Trump's personal problems, which I think is a huge programming mistake. That said, once again, if you do ask him about it, which, of course, the media will be asking him about it, Ryan, he hasn't changed his mind. He doesn't think he did anything wrong on January 6th at all. There was a famous cinematic moment where He's like, you want me to see the tweets? And he literally pulls out the timestamp of his tweets, which actually just vindicate the timeline that the CNN interviewer (laughs) was asking about. But uh, it doesn't matter because to the audience, they were eating it up. They loved it. And I actually thought, Ryan that the Stop the Steal answer and how it was supposedly repulsing Republicans. Again, I am not talking here about uh, independent voters or Democrats who do genuinely hate Stop the Steal and find it uh, like repulsive and abhorrent, at least electorically, as we can see in 2022. What is the very second question that is asked at the town hall? Will you pardon the January 6th rioters? We have some of that. Let's take a listen.
5: My question to you is, will you pardon the January 6th rioters who were convicted of federal offenses. I am inclined to pardon many of them. I can't say for every single one, because a couple of them, probably they got out of control.
4: So. Probably they got out of a control. A couple of them, one or two, So okay, stop the steal on January sixth. So far, what are what are you making of it? So by the way, we know that most of you did not watch the town hall. We did our best to you know compile some of this stuff together. But if you do have the time, go watch the seventy minutes. We're gonna try our best here, you know, to put as much of a narrative and all that. But I do encourage you, if you have the time, to go and watch the full thing for yourself. All right. So like, yeah. Uh,
1: on the one hand, I understand the criticism yeah. of the media here and mm. and the focus group. Called out yes. CNN like why would why does he keep right. talking about twenty twenty well right. your first question was about twenty twenty yes. your second right. question is about January <laughs> six so gee I don't know why it is he yes. keeps talking about that's it. true yeah however on the other hand yeah the guy gives those answers mm-hmm. so you're like wow like mm-hmm. and I think it's important for the American public to see that oh I thought it was great that's yeah. that is who he is mm-hmm. he is the by far the front runner for the Republican nomination, likely to be on the ballot against the sitting president. He's the former president of the United States. He's not just celebrity apprentice guy at this Mm -hmm. point. He's a former president. And if he's going to say that he is going to probably pardon most of the January 6th rioters, that is newsworthy.
4: No, not only newsworthy, but I think what it gets to is uh, there is a level of highbrow stop the steal, which drives me insane, which Senator Hawley is absolutely <clears throat> guilty of. Many of these other people. Ted Cruz um, will get Ted into some Cruz, of that. They're like, well, you know. The commission, it, my commission idea. Commission, Not just the commission, Ryan. They'll be like, but did you know that the Hunter Biden laptop story? And we're like, yeah, of course we knew yeah. that. And by the way, you know, who has covered that more than we have here? We did an entire segment about it. And in fact, if the Trump town hall hadn't happened, we would have done an entire another segment right. about it. We're very happy to and we will be covering it on our Monday show. Congratulations. The point is is that he doesn't believe that because the Hunter Biden laptop story that the election was stolen. Right. And that is election interference. We could absolutely say that. But he believes that the votes were specifically rigged and changed right. in multiple different states. And that's what really hit from the town hall. Right. He'd be like, "Well, in Milwaukee, in particular you know every city he has a story and right. georgia he has a story <clears throat> milwaukee he has a story In what philadelphia, philadelphia yeah. he has a story and i already know the maga bots are going to be in the comments being like well did you see this one video it's like well okay prove it in court you know and guess yeah. what as uh, they brought up last night correctly they lost every single court case if you had such compelling evidence then presumably one judge you can't even if if pro life people can get some crank judge in texas to take down the uh, what is it the Hill for like yeah. a week. You and you can't get one judge to go. Not one judge. Not even a state guy to go along with your nonsense, what does that tell you about you?
1: And this, okay. this, this could be a good moment to do right. something for the YouTube censors here. What yeah. I'll say is Lindsey Graham- Oh, that's right, I'm sorry. Yeah, you, Lindsey Graham made 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 the yeah. point that this was not stolen the night of January 6th, early yes. January 7th. Go watch, go watch his speech, right. it was incredible. He's saying what Sagar's saying, he's yeah. like, you guys say 10,000 dead right. people voted in Georgia. I asked for five, right. I got none. Yeah. You guys say that 60,000 like, Mexicans right. voted in Arizona. Right. Right. Show me four. Mm-hmm. You said 100,000 uh, people in Milwaukee turned out, uh, you know, that voted twice. Mm-hmm. Like show me 10 of them and yes. I got zero. Yeah. So that's Lindsey Graham. Yeah. And so to your point, right, he doesn't believe that it was unfair yeah. because the CIA right. like that's coordinated right. with Hunter Biden and, and persuaded people to vote a different way. Exactly. He thinks that Hugo Chavez's ghost came in. Yeah, he
4: literally believes that. And so, and by the way, if you believe that, I think, you know, I mean, I think you need help, but, and I think you're wrong, but I guess at least you're honest. Uh, You're more honest or as honest as Trump. You're dishonest though, if you're a Republican Senator here in this town and you're singing a different tune about why the election was stolen, but not in the way that Trump says. And actually you brought up a good point, just so everybody knows. Every single time that we air a clip where Trump says that the election was stolen, we, according to youtube guidance have to make sure that we also say that the election was not stolen now frankly i mean i don't think i should have to do that um because also, even though i don't, do yeah. don't believe that the election was stolen uh yeah. but i still have to say it um because apparently that's what the content policy is right. they, they, th- um, they think, think that
1: viewers as long as you and i say right. it, and yeah. the viewers like oh right well okay never right. mind then it's not so like Saga you're and you're Ryan smart
4: enough this. to figure it out for yourself <laughs> yes. that's what i think Anyway, that's the YouTube policy and also become a premium member because that's why uh, this is why things are precarious as they are. Let's go to the final clip here. Probably, honestly, the most shocking moment. Uh, Trump uh, not only talks about January 6th, not only defends Ashley Babbitt, the protester who was shot dead at the Capitol, calls the cop who shot her, quote, a thug. Let's take a listen.
3: Over 140 officers were injured that day.
5: And a person named Ashley Babbitt was killed. Yes. You know what? She was killed and she shouldn't have been killed. And that thug that killed her, there was no reason to shoot her. At blank range, cold blank range, they shot her. Whew,
4: Ryan, that's uh, that's something. And uh, what you can see from Trump there, uh, not only defending yes. Ashley Babbitt, he said that protesters at January 6th had, quote, love in their hearts <laughs> whenever they arrived. Look, I mean... In terms of litigating all this, I do think it is a little interesting that uh, the Republicans um, around the Ashley Babbitt case basically become the level of like BLM activists whenever it comes to Ashley Babbitt, but not so whenever it's uh, like any sort of cop shooting. I do think we should be consistent. And I actually think it's totally legitimate. I I think it's actually totally legitimate to be like, hey, was this a legitimate use of force? Like you have this and she broke through, whatever, she broke through the window, right? And he immediately um, shot through the window. And then, you know, when we're talking about self-defense and all of that, I actually think it's a legitimate conversation just about how we should handle these things. What do riot situations look like? What are the breaching rules um, and all of that? That said, I mean, I think there's a lot of inconsistency here and we're basically playing like I, cop identity politics in terms of when <laughs> protesters, uh, it's OK and what's not. But I mean, regardless of that. Media-wise, you know that this is probably—that probably triggered them more than anything else from the night.
1: You, you make a really good yeah. point because if you compare it to other police shooting videos mm-hmm. uh, where you will have 10 officers surrounding one unarmed person. Right. And the unarmed person is kind of freaking out because they're, like, getting conflicting orders. Mm-hmm. Put your hands behind your back. Put your hands behind your head. Get on your knees. Don't, don't move. No, move. And then they move a little bit, and then they all shoot them dead. Shot them, yeah. And they say, well, we were all in fear of our life because yep. we saw him reach for his waistband. Right, right. Ashley Babbitt was part of a mob mm-hmm. that was kicking its way into, into <laughs> through the mm-hmm. doors into the speaker's lobby there. The idea that the person who uh, saw somebody reach for their waistband was totally justified in ending somebody's life, right. but that this person should have you know, de-escalated mm-hmm. this situation in a different way, I might agree that maybe uh, it would be nice if there was a way to de-escalate that, but the I, but ex- I think that's a really good point to compare it to other police shootings where the same types of people are like that was justified. Yes, uh, you know, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Correct.
4: Yeah. Well, listen, I think that's actually why I get so. This is why I think the discourse around this is so poisonous. It's like we're all criminal justice reform advocates whenever it comes for Jan 6 protesters, which I do think many of them were very unjustly treated. But, you know, at the same time, it's like some lock-em-up thing um, for any crime that they don't like. Mm Got to be consistent. That's how the law works. Uh, And then finally, Mike Pence moment. (laughs) This one is shocking too. He still truly believes that Mike Pence had the ability to change the election results on January 6th even though he had no, absolutely zero capacity to do so. Here's what he had to say. One person
3: who was at the Capitol that day, as you know, was your vice president, Mike Pence, who says that you endangered his life on that day. I don't think he was in any danger. Mr. President, do you feel that you owe him an apology?
5: No, because he did something wrong. He should have put the votes back to the state legislatures, and I think we would have had a different outcome.
4: Should have put the votes back to the state. Once again, he doesn't have the capacity. I also do love Trump's, uh, his explanation for why he could have done so. He's like, well, he could have done so because they tried to pass the Electoral Count Act afterwards and as and he was like, oh, they strengthened it. Well, what they took out is any shred of legal right. ambiguity around it. So, you know, it, it is just one of those where he believes it, people. That's the, the biggest takeaway, he believes the election was stolen, that Hugo Chavez's ghost and Chinese Dominions and all these other people individually conspired and acted together while Mike Lindell apparently is the only guy who's ever been able to find out about it to go in and change election results. And if you sign on to that, this is what you're signing on to. This is why I actually think this is a great service mm-hmm. for all of us. This is it. This is Trump. He's not gonna change. He will never, ever Ever change. And that's probably the most evergreen thing that we learned about him. So, anyway, let's go to the second part here uh, because it's not like we couldn't get enough um, from Trump. They also had to ask him, of course, but you guys did a great job, by the way, uh, talking about the E.G. and Carroll verdict, what it was, what it wasn't, um, all that's a bit complicated because what was it? They found him liable of defamation, uh, liable of sexual, sexual abuse. abuse, but not liable of rape, which I'm still personally trying to wrap my head around. Trump uh, also had his uh, response um, to I mean, that there's verdict. A, there's a
1: rather graphic answer to that. Yeah, just, yeah, just, but, yeah. The,
4: the good point. If you're watching this with children, you should, you know, muffs. All right, let's take a listen.
5: Just so you understand, Ready? I never met this woman. I never saw this woman. This woman said, I met her at the front door of Bergdorf Goodman, which I rarely go into, other than for a couple of charities. I met her in the front door. She was about 60 years old. And this is like 22, 23 years ago. I met her in the front door of Bergdorf Goodman. I was immediately attracted to her, and she was immediately attracted to me. And we had this great chemistry. We're walking into a crowded department. So we had this great chemistry. And a few minutes later, we end up in a, a room, a dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman, right near the cash register. And then she found out there are locks on the door. So she said, I found one that was open. She found one, she learned this at trial. She found one that was open. What kind of a woman meets somebody and brings them up and within minutes, you're playing hanky-panky in a dressing room, okay?
4: Crowd was eating it up there, Ryan. Crowd was eating it up. Everybody was like, oh, Trump, you know. Messiah. I'm like, yeah. You, you first time, like <laughs> first time you ever heard Trump. They also tried to get him on the uh, what was it? Uh, the the answer that he gave in his deposition about uh, when you grab him, you know, they let you mm-hmm. do it, and he's like, well, you know, it's fortunate or unfortunately or fortunately, and he's like, well, you know, that's something that has always been kind of the case for famous people. What did you make of his response? What do you think? What well, was interesting that he yeah.
1: wanted to relitigate
4: access well, that's Hollywood? How he is? Yeah, yeah that's also how he wants to relitigate is. everything. Yeah.
1: And he wanted to zero in on the word let mm-hmm. because what he was trying to say, it seemed like, was that let implies consent.
4: Ah, uh, okay, okay.
1: And that unfortunately or fortunately, powerful, rich, mm. famous people are able to get consent. Like that, that right. was the whole riff that right. he was going in on. But it, it's just bizarre that he wants to relitigate that, but it's very Trump. And to me, it was disturbing to watch uh, the crowd hooting Really? To, his, to his like mockery of Eugene e, Carroll that was the part where I was like oh this is just th- that was the part where I thought CNN was like really getting now m- maybe what they wanted because it's going to be, be ratings yeah. but it was just't I, I know horrifying but it's like to, to think of an entire crowd of people like mocking that mm. that moment while he's mocking it on on stage. It's just it does not kind of uh, portray the world that I wish that we lived in.
4: Well, it's certainly not. Unfortunately, you know, in the eyes of a lot of these people, everything is politicized and everything is there. If like if you're going to turn this into politicization, right. that's, then that's, this is going to be a joke, and I'm going right. to treat it like a joke.
1: That, I think unfortunately I, that's how a lot of people. I think that's how people yeah. who are, uh, I'm sure, uh, uh, against sexual assault and rape yes, in their yes. in their daily life, they 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 think it's all right politicized. Mm-hmm. So and so therefore, but a lot of people watching it, I think don't. Have not don't do not have the same Twitter brain no, that we that's do. That's a Rorschach but, test. That yeah. is
4: genuinely a Rorschach test on how. You, and I don't judge anybody who feels um, either way. But you also got to point to uh, just to the crowd and the level of which they were. They're loving the the tr- that, that is yeah. vintage classic Trump, right? Well, another one was uh, going after the moderator Caitlin Collins at CNN, calling her quote a nasty person. And the, again, the crowd is eating this up. Take a listen.
3: That's yes. the question that investigators have. I think is why you held on to those documents when you knew the federal government was seeking them and then had given you a subpoena to return them. Are you them. ready?
5: Are you ready? Can I talk?
3: Yeah, what's you the mind? answer?
5: Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the okay, question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to, you're a nasty person, I'll tell you <laughs>
4: You're a nasty person, okay? And again, the crowd, they can cheer. I mean, this is also where, you know, it kind of get to your point, Ryan, which, no offense, but there's a lot of pearl clutching going on where people are like, I can't believe the crowd would cheer. I'm like, here's what you got people need to understand. They hate you. They hate you so much. They hate you so much. The reason that they vote for this, this like vulgar, weird, uh, you know, famous billionaire from New York is because of moments like that. And they will never understand it. I, I think you were intellectually capable of that. And, and, yeah. and that's why watching that, I couldn't help but uh, almost just because I'm like, wow, like that right there, that is why, what, 70-something million people voted for him in 2020. They, they are, can never get enough of Trump via the media because the only person less popular than him is them. But yeah. also, we
1: say Trump can't change, yeah. but that was woke Trump. Oh, Did really? Did you notice? No,
4: I didn't. He, he oh, he said nasty person, not nasty right. woman.
1: <laughs> Hillary Clinton was nasty. Was, it was, was Hillary Clinton? Who was it nasty was Hillary, woman? yeah, yeah. He's He's gone woke now. That's good. That's he, He's like, this is not a gendered yes. insult that I am leveling right. here. I like that. I like that. Yeah, so. Yeah. Trump, well, yeah. Uh,
4: I, I want him to start. Yeah, the that's woke right. We need, to got stop, to him. we need to stop him from saying things like the dumbest man on television, the dumbest person on television, <laughs> not a nasty person, not a nasty woman. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's Trump. Trump, Trump is Trump, and that's just really my, maybe because I covered him for so long, You know, it was in, the, in all of this, literally watched this play out on a day-to-day basis. Not a single thing that happened last night surprised me or shocked me at all. It just seemed like right back, return um, to where things are. Lots of media, like I said, pearl-clutching around this, but I think that the fundamental question for everybody to ask, for everyone who is involved and, and finds this repugnant, is how do we get here? How do we get to a point where people are laughing at the Eugene Carroll thing, How do you get to a point where people are cheering whenever you call uh, a nasty person? I remember some of the biggest cheers that he used to get is at his rallies is when he would look at the back, he'd be like, you see those red lights and they're turning away, they're mm-hmm. not showing the crowd. He's like, there's fake news, CNN, and the crowd would go wild. Yeah. If you've ever been to a Trump rally and you've seen the press you know, at the barricade in the back and, and the, the they became, I mean, by the way, they love this too, just so everybody knows. Jim Acosta would be there and he'd be like, look at the way that these people are treating oh, yeah. me." It's a bi-directional thing. The, the crowd loves hating you, and he loves being hated by the crowd. It helps him sell books. So don't act also like there's not a lot going on here, but it's was at, a self-perpetuating yeah. cancer. I can I, tell you. I
1: was, I was at the dawn of this. Did, were you at Sarah Palin's speech no, at the RNC? No, no, no. RNC? I, wish, I wish I'd been there, yeah. It was yeah. Uh, electric in a kind of terrifying way. Uh,
4: yeah, this way. Right. Like his,
1: McCain gives his acceptance speech. It's right. like a normal political speech. Mm-hmm. You know, The rest of the Republicans throughout that convention. Country it just first. Normal. Yeah. It was just normal stuff. Right. When Sarah Palin... Uh, hit that stage, and and she started coming. I forget what she called us. It wasn't fake news. It was some something else. But I know like you talking about, she called out the whole whole press area, and you could feel the energy of of that room turn toward the press. I remember, being like, whoa, this is. This is something else. Yeah. This, is a, this is a different thing. Like, these people hate me
4: right There's now. There's uh, another good clip, if anybody wants to go watch it, of Newt Gingrich going after the media in 2012, similar time period. So mm-hmm. it was 2012 in the primary. Gingrich, uh, it's like the CNN actually town hall or debate or something like that. And they opened it up by asking him whether he wants to apologize to his ex-wife or something like that for genuinely doing scummy things, like very scummy Oh, I remember behavior. that, yes. Yeah. and he was like, well, I think how, dare, debate, you? how uh, dare you how dare you? And the biggest threat to this country is the the crowd on their feet went wild and gingrich actually popped in the polls Mm -hmm. after that That was one of the biggest precursors to what would eventually happen in the 2015 primary So all of the all of the uh, breadcrumbs were there the Sarah Palin hockey mom speech If you remember that it's Mm -hmm. like what's the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull lipstick and the crowd is Like absolutely losing it gingrich well, that's how we got and to uh, Agnew. where we are. The, Agnew. the nattering nabobs of yes. negativity. Yes, <laughs> so. uh, That's a good, that's a good, you know, people should go read about that too. That's that's some good stuff. All right, part three here. So we have alluded to this. Media figures, Democratic politicians, some of them named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, losing their minds at this CNN Trump hall. Not for uh, any of substantive reason, because to them, platforming it was anti democratic. And uh, the anti-democracy of all of this was just so irresponsible. AOC appeared on MSNBC as if they love democracy so much to denounce the CNN town hall. Here's what she had to say.
0: I know you said earlier that you will not comment on the platforming of um, such atrocious disinformation, but I would. I think it was a profoundly irresponsible decision. I don't think that it would I would be doing my job if I did not say that. Um, And what we saw tonight was a series of extremely irresponsible decisions that put a sexual abuse victim at risk, that put that person at risk in front of a national audience, and I could not have disagreed with it more. It was shameful.
4: It was shameful, Ryan. What she's referencing is she was on the Stephanie Rule show. And actually, Stephanie Rule opened it and be like, we will not be discussing or talking about this at all. Really, because you're in the news business. Why not? If you think it was shameful, air the clip. Air, yeah. air it forever. That's what we just did. You make up your mind. You make up your mind. Why don't we have enough trust in people that if Trump says that Venezuelan, Chinese dominions stole the election, they go, yeah, you know, I don't think, it, I don't mm. think that that happened. Mm. And then come voting time, whenever he gets a bunch of Republicans who endorse that on the ballot, they're like, yeah, you know, I really hate Joe Biden. And even though I live in Arizona and I hate uh, the Democrats, I'm just gonna vote for one. Anyway, democracy works. Yeah, it works think, when you right, let people make up their own minds.
1: I think, right, I think have yeah. have more faith in the American public. <laughs> yeah. That Democrats, I think, ought to have been saying thank you for this. Yes.
4: Yeah, you're right. The but smart we're, ones were saying that, actually.
1: Right, because yeah. right, it did a couple things. Right. One, it uh, continued to scare away a bunch of yep. independents and uh, kind of Democratic leaners, the ones who may come out, may not come out. That t- didn't play well at all mm-hmm. to them, I don't think. We'll find out. Uh, but secondly, Trump thinks it played great, and Trump's base thinks yeah, it played great. they loved it too. It made him a so, hero. So right. they're going to lean in. They're going to be like, oh, we need to make fun of E.G. and Carol Moore. Exactly. We're going to make that a regular part of my stump speech. I need to continue talking about hmm. uh, pardoning the January 6 rioters. I need to continue questioning the election results because that all worked for me, not realizing that, yes, it worked to fire up your base. Excellent. Excellent But point. it's only going to bury you further And so have, have faith that if Trump lets his freak flag fly, that enough of the American public is going to be like, you know what? We, we don't, I'm not sure we want the Sleepy Joe guy, but this is, if this is the choice, we're going with Sleepy Joe.
4: Which is literally what happened in the 2022 election. I actually thought Biden had the best response. You know what he tweeted? It's simple, folks. Do you want four more years of that? If you don't, pitch into our campaign. Perfect, perfect response. Instead of, oh, democracy, democracy is being destroyed. Uh, One, Rick Wilson, um, who you will remember from the grifting Lincoln Project, um, has taken a break from the grift off of their Democratic boomer donors and has instead decided to come on the air and just on Twitter and denounce with almost tears in his eyes about what happened. Here's what he had to say.
1: We're in a break now from the presidential uh, town hall with CNN, Caitlin Collins, and whatever the fuck they thought they were going to get out of this, they instead have set a match to democracy once again. You are letting an insane person stand there and make people giggle and laugh when he jokes about rape. You make people giggle and laugh when he jokes about abortion, when he calls an African-American police officer a thug. This insanity
4: should be pulled off the fucking air Chris Lick, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of yourself. Uh, Morning Joe was on this morning, Ryan. Uh, Here's what Joe Scarborough had to say. CNN's town hall was disgraceful on every level. The most shocking part was seeing the audience lapping it up. What I saw last night was as chilling as anything that I've seen on TV since January the 6th. So if seeing Republicans love Trump is as triggering as Jan 6th, then w- w- you're in for it, my man. Uh, our politics are actually disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and <laughs> welcome to America. And shameful. Yeah. And so <laughs> what is the other option. Yeah, exactly. Like we can't make it. We, we yeah, You and I can yeah. try as much as we can to make a better politics. Nor should than we I, have
4: the power right. to do so because right. no one person or two people or whatever should right. ever have the power.
1: Right. right. What do yeah. they, it's, it's weird because what yeah. do they think their role is? Mm-hmm. Like if, if you don't, so use the word platform, if you don't platform the Republican basically nominee right. for president, he's still on the ballot. Exactly. So what, what are you accomplishing exactly? If, you're, if you think that people can't handle his views, what if then they get a distorted idea mm-hmm. about what he believes, and they think that he's actually moved on from, Correct. and he's not gonna pardon the January 6th writers? Then they vote for him. He gets in and does all the things that you were keeping mm-hmm. him from sharing with the public that he was going to do. How does that serve democracy?
4: So tell me about this. There was a huge debate. Um, Let's put this on there on the screen, though, by the way. Uh, The CNN actually cut their town hall short. It was scheduled for 90 minutes. The actual event was to go as long as 75. They stopped less than 70 minutes in. They could have gone longer if they wanted, which is usually what executives do with big ratings draw. I think they personally thought it was a disaster. So according to the commentariat online, the biggest mistake that Caitlin Collins made is she didn't fact fact check him enough. Now, I wanna know what you think about this. I've interviewed Trump four times. Guess what, every time you fact check him, it off derails the conversation, you don't get it. Uh, If you keep doing it longer, he'll just cut it off, so you're not gonna get information. But in general, when I interview politicians, I let them talk, and if they say a lie, we can talk about it afterwards. Maybe we can gently be like, hey, you know, that's uh, that this isn't another mm-hmm. opposing view. What utility is there to the constant fact-checking to somebody's face? And just so people know, I do this with Democrats and Republicans. I've interviewed dozens, mm-hmm. Pramila Jayapal, I've interviewed all these Democrats who I don't agree with at all, who in many cases I find like repugnant at least on a policy level, but I'm not going to sit there and like show my disdain to their face. I'm just going to ask them a good right. faith question. I'll do the same thing with Republicans uh, when anybody really, because I, I, I enjoy letting people talk, and I believe in letting people judge for themselves. You know, I can try and add some context, whatever, and I don't think I'm going to change anybody's mind. What do you think about the whole fact-checking conversation?
1: I'm, ca- I'm kind of with you on that, because yeah. to me it goes to what is the role of, of yeah. the media. And to we are interlocutors, right. you know? Right. If, if, yeah. if we have uh, strong opinions about it, something that somebody's saying and how the country, we can run for office. Right. Like right. that's Good point. that's a path that is open to us, and so if a person is running for office, I think it's our job to question them, to probe at their views, mm-hmm. but setting yourself up like you're in a de- in a debate with them on a debate stage yes. like one on one, you're in different roles, so that doesn't quite make sense. And you and then to your point, mm-hmm. t- pragmatically and tactically, it just doesn't work. Like so, the whole 52 mile thing was yeah. just so like exhausting Caitlin said
4: this last night she goes we can't let you say that and i said really did somebody elect cnn like who ele- what cnn's air is more powerful than the president is like youtube or something yeah like yeah, <laughs> exactly what do you want? youtube because we actually can't let you literally say that. we can't. Uh, yeah, yeah. but the point is, is like you know who elected you nobody like your job is to get info from trump and you know another thing i'm going to know because we're going to spend the rest of our show on policy on ukraine The audience members asked the best damn questions the entire night. The best Mm -hmm. questions that came from Trump were about January 6th, like you said. They were also about the stolen election. It's not Mm -hmm. like those people didn't want to ask questions. What else did they ask about, Ryan? Dead ceiling, Ukraine abortion, mm-hmm. every single one of their questions was fantastic because the audience members want to get to what's really going on here. They're asking about, hey, I'm having trouble paying my bills. And these are Republicans, just so everyone knows. But even normal Republicans, like, they don't want to sit and mire in this 2020, like, election stuff. They want to be like, what are you going to do for me? What's e- even going to happen? The,
1: even their, like, backward-looking January 6th yeah. question was forward-looking. Exactly. Are but you going like, to pardon it? Are you going to pardon yes. it? Rather, rather than what did you think of right. like the way that they ransacked the Capitol right. or can, right. you know, d- would you like to apologize yes. to Mike Pence? It's like, they right, it's forward-looking.
4: Yeah, because these people, you know, who are, the people in the audience, were smart. they're smarter than us because we're probably still two in it, right? Yeah. We are st- we're, we live and breathe politics. Yeah. They are living their lives. They're the ones who actually vote at the end of the day. And they're the ones who pick their own president and their nominee and they had better questions that served all of us. So we will be spending the bulk and the majority of the rest of the time actually talking about that. But we could not let this final thing go, which is, as everybody at Breaking Points know, Crystal and I, we love a good focus group, especially when the focus group uh, basically just slaps the media in the face. Here we had CNN, a bunch of Republican voters, uh, who were with the CNN, uh, with CNN after the town hall, in which they stunned uh, the actual interviewees because they didn't give them the answers they expected. Let's take a listen.
2: Does it bother you that he keeps talking about 2020 and not 2024? I'll ask you first. This is Jonathan Leslie. He's 40, Republican, voted for Trump twice. How do you feel about those lies? So I feel like part of it's also the media narrative as you guys asking the first question at the town hall about the 2020 election. Rather than current stuff. So don't you think you could say it's time for me to start talking about 2024 and not lies that aren't true? Could the media ask him a question about 2024? Well, there were questions, but you're right—that was the first thing. That that's something that was on our mind, and that's why I was asked first. What I want to ask you first of all is: Do you think? Show of hands. Anybody think Donald Trump looks better after this town hall? Any of you think he looks worse? Any of you think the same thing about him as you did when you walked in? So all of you feel that way.
4: There you go. They're like. Mm. They're like, why we kept saying all this stuff about 2020? It's like, well, you asked them about 2020. Yeah. And they're like, if you and they're like shouldn't you talk about 2024? They're like, well, why don't you ask them? <laughs> you ask that's it. a great question. It's them. a great question. As usual, yeah. they are they know so much better than we do. Yeah. And the, my personal favorite at the end there, like raise your hand if you feel better about it. Raise your hand if you feel, for, feel worse about it. Raise your hand if you feel the same. I've talked about it here before. Uh, p- debates and these types of things, j- statistically... Political science data, we have like 60 years mm-hmm. to tell us this, have zero impact on the election. Zero. It's almost always about more structural factors. Personal stuff, it can matter. It can. It's difficult to predict. Uh, but this is also what gets to my whole thing around the fact-checking. What is the point of constantly being like, no, uh, actually, sir, this is you know, 52 miles of wall, not 450. Guess what? The people who believe that Trump built the wall are never gonna change their minds, even if, even if he didn't build a scrap of wall. And then also, people who believe that there was not a single mile of wall built are not gonna change their minds after you were like, well, actually, there were 52. What you feel about Trump is baked in. He's been on the national stage now since 2015. Almost ten years. we were coming up on a decade of the Trump era in American politics. It's all here yeah, and it at goes, this point.
1: And the, the limits of fact checking were yeah. so exposed by that exchange too, because they were so obviously right. talking past exactly. each other. Exactly. Thank he, you. What he yeah. he was saying, he's like, "Look, I rehabbed a yeah, bunch of like right. rusty old crappy yes. fence, right. and they wouldn't count that in my 52 right. miles." And she would just say, "Well, you did 52 miles." Yes. Secondly, it's like they're both right, actually. Yeah. Th- they they are yeah. they are both right, uh, but then secondly, it's like. Well, you guys don't want that wall anyway. Mm-hmm. So why are you kind of criticizing him for not building enough of the thing that you don't want him to build any of? Yes. So the whole the whole thing, because when you get into fact-checking, it takes the kind of ideology and ideas mm-hmm. out of I it. I don't believe in neutral mm-hmm.
4: fact-checks. I actually think that outside of like literal math, like two plus two or whatever, mm-hmm. or physics, I don't think that there is such thing as a fact-check. Everything is relative. Everything is basically... Up for debate. Everything is uh, like a, a, everything is at the level of argumentation. You know, even, you know, whenever, like we were talking about the stolen election, it's like, yeah, well, if you just put it that way, then, you know, somebody can say about this, you know, if you put it the way Trump does, then okay, like you can get into that. But even then, it's like, the point is, is that about changing people's minds. And I think that the news, at best, what I like to do when we meet people out in the wild, like what's the most edifying thing they say? You say, you make me answer sense of the world, hate, mm-hmm. help, help my relationship with my parents, because I felt like we were talking past each right. other. And instead, we watch your show together, and we come away with different takeaways, and we sit down and we're like, well, here's what I agreed with, what Sagar said, or Crystal said it, Ryan said or Emily said it, but I realized that because they could talk together afterwards, that you and I can talk now as well. I mean, that the point is, is that you, you can even start from the same show and come away with two completely different opinions. That's humanity. And I think you got to worry
1: about getting too rigid. When Trump said, uh, well, why did I make that call to Georgia? Because I was questioning the results of the election. He just says it outright. And Democrats are going to be like, well, that's insane. You should go to prison for that. But I also think Democrats are going to regret in the future setting a standard by which it is wrong to question the results of elections. Mm. What if Republicans in Arizona Mm -hmm. or Wisconsin, Alabama, Alabama, uh, Democrats Democrats are kind of in conflict here because on the one hand, they're always accusing Republicans Mm of of voter suppression and Mm -hmm. and trying to steal elections, and then at the same time saying that you can never question the results of an election. So I bet in our lifetimes, we're going to have a point where Republicans are going to straight up steal some election somewhere, and Democrats are then going to be handcuffed a little bit in the way that they're able to point to the ways well, look at Stacey that it happened. Abrams.
4: Stacey Abrams was allowed to do it in 2018, but then immediately after the Trump thing, they were like, hey, Stacey, shut up. If yeah, want, Stacey, let's... You uh, let's uh, if you want to be able to continue selling books and, you know, grifting off Michael you're, Bloomberg... You're, you're killing us with and this all these other people, 2018 like, thing. Yeah, you yeah. got to gotta shut up. You got to accept it and just kind of walk away after you lost a couple more times. Anyway, uh, I thought that the these are our big, like, personality, I guess, takeaways. We're going to go ahead uh, into the policy now. Let's get to it. This, Ryan, in my estimation, was some of the best that came out of this because Trump took a position in the debt ceiling fight, which is going to have massive ramifications in terms of how Republican voters and also the actual Republican policymakers respond to everything that's going on here right now. Let's look. take a listen to this question about how uh, the Republican should handle the debt ceiling, how Trump feels about the debt, and also about what Republicans should do in said uh, def- defaults type scenario. Let's take a listen.
3: What do you think about the United States current debt situation? and how can we move forward? Uh,
5: Such an important question. So we're at $33 trillion, a number that nobody ever thought possible. When we had our economy rocking and rolling just prior to COVID coming in, like literally we were making a fortune. And oil, we were gonna make so much money from oil, we were gonna start paying off debt. But then with COVID coming in, we had to do other things. We had to keep this country alive because it was so serious. But we have to get the country back. We have to lower energy prices. We have to lower interest rates. Interest rates are through the roof. Energy has to come down. It all has to come down. And we have to start paying off debt. You
3: once said that using the, that using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge uh, just could not happen. You, you said that sure. when you were in the That's Oval Office. I was president. So, so why is it different now that you're out of office?
4: Because now I'm not president. <laughs> They couldn't get enough, Brian. They loved it. I
1: mean, that's hilarious. That, I mean, that yeah, is, it's hilarious. By the way, that is, is true. Uh, yeah. You know
4: what? This is again what, part of his appeal because he'll just when other politicians are inconsistent, they're like, "Well, uh, technically, things were different." He's like, "No, I just don't." He's like, "I'm inconsistent," and because I'm a ruthless politician, right, my they're power like, position oh, okay. has changed. Yeah, like okay. And <laughs> okay.
1: now, cynically, what yeah. I thought as like coming away from that exchange uh-huh. was that Trump actually would appreciate a default because it will hurt Biden of course and hurt the yeah. economy and guarantee his election right if he uh you know if there's enough of a hit so for Trump it's like he gets to talk tough and then all but he also wants the car crash mm-hmm. in this game of chicken because if the cars cars crash and you get unemployment back up to six percent by November uh 2024 Biden has a very difficult time getting reelected.
4: yeah I mean listen this is part of why this entire conversation drives me nuts Trump uh, under trump the national debt increased by 7.8 trillion from 20 20- Nobody thought it was possible he started the he started uh the administration with 20 trillion dollars in debt um, after the obama years that was in 2017 that was after an increase from 10 to 20 trillion um so then it went from 20 to 28 trillion um after the end of the trump presidency now i guess to be fair to him only 5 trillion of that was pre covid so half of it was post covid i mean I mean, yeah. and, and listen, you're looking at two people who are, don't have that a lot, who don't have that many objections to deficit spending, or who th- probably have very, very right. different views on de- default and or on default and debt, deficit spending and debt, um, on national debt specifically, as in it's not the same thing as a household balance sheet because we're right. the world superpower, so there's a little bit of a difference. You know, we're not like Bosnia or something like that, um, yeah. but if we were going to speak the language of what he's talking about, we have to get our national debt under control, you know, all this other stuff. Well, then, uh, you know, it's a little hypocritical whenever you're going to sign one of the largest corporate tax cuts. And I actually, that's part of why, as much as I enjoyed the hit, the hit moment where Caitlyn was said, you know, well, you said as president, it's actually better to hit them with the genuine policy hypocrisy mm-hmm. here. To be like, listen, you literally signed one of the largest corporate tax In history. Cuts. In history.
1: Which he talked about and bragged about. Yeah, which he
4: talked and bragged about. And the case that you made was it was going to boom the economy. And, I mean, it kind of did. It also increased the deficit. So, and that's fine, in my opinion. Uh, A lot of people's opinion, too, as the voters, who mostly were okay with that. But, you know, you can't then say that we got to get our spending or whatever out of control. I actually think the most effective tactic that I've heard yet is not objective to the spending overall. It's when people said you're spending money on X, Y, and Z. Like spending money on an unpopular program like the IRS, for example, Mm -hmm. right? That is actually a way to get people to be like, yeah, hold on a second. Maybe we shouldn't spend so much money on the IRS. And even that, you know, I think is up for debate. So, yeah, what do you make about uh, his answer there on the default?
1: Right, I think you're right that the way to go after him is to— Hit that wedge in between the kind of Paul Ryan Republicans who wrote that tax cut, and and Trump who kind of right. signed that tax cut right. into law. Because how can you, on the one hand, you know, brag about this gigantic tax cut, and then on the other hand, say. Isn't it? Isn't it such a shame that we now have thirty-three trillion dollars uh, in There's debt? There's a great
4: clip actually of uh, of uh, Trump back in the day talking about real estate, and he's like, "I'm a real estate guy. I love debt. Debt, you know, debt. Yes. You know? <laughs> Which you know, I he's, mean, he's right. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: Early on in his presidency, like yeah. the one the one thing that he really does understand is interest rates because one hundred percent. His whole real estate yeah. scheme yes. was just skimming cash flow off yeah. of off real cash
4: sales, flow. Refinance. Yeah. You, know, you know, refinance this property. Buy this property take this property, cash out, refinance on this. Yeah, it's madness. I don't really know how those people sleep at night, but uh, just like from a stress level perspective, because that sounds insane to me, but I guess it worked out for them. Yeah. Uh, the thing though is on the interest rates, It again, Trump has these savant moments where he understands consumer economics, I think, better than a lot of people who do this for a professional living. And in that answer, he specifically targeted interest rates. And while he was president, I don't know if a lot of people remember this, he ruthlessly yes. hammered Jerome Powell and the Fed chair. He was like doxing him. Constantly. <laughs> on Twitter, he was like, yes. he needs to bring down the rates. And that was when rates were like, what, like 0.2%? Yes. Or something bring like that. More. He's like, yeah. yeah, he's like, bring them down more. Make it zero. Make it negative. Uh, make it so hammering
1: MBS yeah, and, pa- was- and exactly. Powell. Exactly. Yeah.
4: He, he had this, again, savant-like knowledge of the way that Americans interact with the economy, which at the end of the day is basically gas prices and mm-hmm. ability to buy stuff. And yeah. not just that, ability to buy stuff downstream from the ability of large corporations to also take out large amounts of debt for debt for debt financing. Unfortunately, in some cases, stock buybacks. But, you know, at least, hopefully, at least in some cases, it trickles down in <laughs> some way by letting people hire them and at least floating your payroll. That's what we see, right? And that, again, is where he displayed his ability to target in on what a lot of voters really care about whenever it comes to the economy. It reminds me of a very famous answer that Bill Clinton gave in 1990 in the presidential debate, a black woman asked him, well, how do you think about the national debt? Or some, something about the national debt. Clinton intuited, he's like, this answer is not about the debt. You're asking mm. me about the economy. And he goes, I know people who lost their jobs. This the, this administration, we've had a t- 12 years of failed trickle-down economics. It's a failed economic theory. We're gonna get people back to work again. I remember, I, I was. it's in my head because one of the best yep. political debate moments, I think ever. Um, that's ever happened because it's about taking what somebody is asking about and not answering it on the face and getting to the core of how the voter really thinks about it. In that, I actually thought he did a good job. But now, in terms of the policy and what it means, here's what matters. Trump uh, endorsement of the McCarthy position gives McCarthy – tremendous more leverage within the Republican caucus because he can go and say, why are you going against Trump on this? Trump endorsed me last night. He strengthened his negotiating hand whenever it came to Biden because this is the leader of the Republican Party, the former president of the United States, the most popular Republican in the entire country. Here's what he thinks we need to do in this specific instance. Um, So it could actually help him from getting people to walk away. Now, at the same time, some of the people who would walk away are coming from like Biden plus five, plus 10 districts. So it's not Mm -hmm. like they need to, you know, hold down the fort, you know, for the general election. But anytime you have Trump on your side in a debate like this, it's going to be better than not whenever you're in an intra-GOP
1: fight. Yeah. Which to me is more reason for Biden to just walk away from the whole thing and do the 14th Amendment and say, right, say, forget this or mint, because the, coin. It, yeah. it, or mint the coin, do, do yeah. whatever. Say we're, we're not we're not playing these games and just, just say, look, mm. Trump, Trump called for a default. Trump mm. wants you guys to default uh, with me and I'm not playing that game. Yeah. i done. Right. I'm, I'm moving on.
4: Okay, let's go to the next part here, abortion. This, again, was a very important moment during the town hall. The reason to me, Ryan, before we even play the clip, watch here how rambling, nonspecific, and how twisted and knots Trump is whenever it comes to the su- subject of abortion. Let's take a listen.
3: And if you are reelected and good. you're back in the Oval Office and you get legislation to your desk, would you sign a federal abortion ban into law?
5: Uh, what I'll do is negotiate so that people are happy. But the fact that we were able... I was able. I'm so proud of it. We put three great justices on the Supreme Court. We have almost 300 federal judges on the Supreme Court. So you... The just to be clear. Just to be clear, Mr.
3: President, you, you would sign a federal abortion well, ban I, into law. I wall. said
5: this. I said this. I want to do what's right. And we're looking. And we want to do what's right for everybody. But what's right... But now, for the first time, the people that are pro-life have negotiating Uh, capability, because you didn't have it before. They could kill the baby in the ninth month or after the baby was born. Now they won't be able to do that. But I think this is
3: a really important question for you to answer, because this is something every Republican, including those who are running against you for the nomination, are being asked about, is would you sign a federal abortion ban into law?
5: And many of them are going to give you the same answer as I. Uh, I am, first of all, I am honored to have done what I did. And a lot of people said, they said in 150 years he's now the most consequential president because he saved so many lives, and I'm honored to have done it.
4: Honored to have done it, Ryan, coming to a Democratic ad near you. (laughs) You will watch that over and over and over and over again. And that is exactly why he's in a real bind. Do you appease the pro-lifers who want more, frankly? They want way more. They want the abortion ban. They want to go, you know, six week in all these states and all that, which are not politically popular at all. Um, And then, He's he's not an idiot, and w- look, I don't. I will never psycho- psychoanalyze anyone. I'm just gonna say personally, I don't believe that Trump is actually pro life. Of, okay, so, of course like not. I, I'm just, mm. me personally, I don't think of so. Of course not. I don't he think that he. Uh, not. I don't think yeah. that he had some crazy change of heart in his sixties. I mean, I guess it's technically possible. Anyway, uh, the point is that in his heart of hearts, at least the political one, he knows. People hate this, which is why he's twisting himself like a pretzel, being like, well, I believe in the exceptions. And then the Democrats, and the late-term abortion. And I'm honored to have done Roe versus Wade, but now it's up to the states. It was two and a half minutes almost. Just, he didn't settle on anything. And she was like, well, what are you gonna do, Like, are you sure? Like, what about the ban, would you sign a ban? He's like, well, we'll see. Some people have good ideas. I haven't made up my mind yet. What does that mean? You've had, what, when did uh, Roe happen, June? Right? It's been almost a year. It's been literally 11 months um, since this, uh, maybe something like that, since this has all come down. How have you not made up your mind yet? You know why? Because he has made up his mind and he knows, privately, it's an electoral disaster. Anyway, so I saw that and I was like, man, Trump he knows this is his kryptonite and, for 2024 yeah. and not yeah.
1: even that privately he was fairly open you know during the, oh, sure. the midterms yeah. saying that's like right. look this is this is yeah. not going to be great yeah, right. for <laughs> us uh, even though he plays such a significant role and then he blamed abortion in, in, for and the election he blamed results, the abortion. which he was right. right yeah so that's why he has to He's trying. Susan B. Anthony came mm-hmm. out recently saying that they would the not SPA. endorse um, any candidate. You know, very powerful organization that would not endorse. Can You
4: explain that to people. So, so Su- who they are? Yes, yeah,
1: Susan B. Anthony may be the most powerful kind of pro-life group, mm-hmm. pro- pro-life group in the country, uh, and they want a national abortion ban. And they they said after Trump w- refused to commit to one, they're like the that, Planned Parenthood of pro-lifers. Yes. Yeah. and so they, and they they came out publicly and said mm-hmm. we will not work for, we will not endorse, we will not support any candidate who refuses to you know, stop killing babies. That's right. And yeah. so th- that's who's in Trump's head mm-hmm. when he's celebrating his overturning of Roe v. Wade. But then the polls are in his head when he's refusing to kind of commit to a national ban. Later in that clip, he says, you know, Lindsey Graham has a nice bill. and Lindsey's what, right. 15, 15 weeks. weeks or something.
4: Because
1: yeah. that poll's a little bit better, but it's still not 15 week, ironically, Ryan
4: was actually much more popular pre Roe and now is much less popular. So, Roe actually, well, it kind of gets to something. One of my core beliefs in politics is just don't take anything away from people. Like, once you take something away, like, it's not going to be good for you. I remember that, you know, like Obama. Obama was like, well, we're going to take away your health care, but everybody's going to get better health care. I'm like, yeah, but you shouldn't screw with my health care, man, because I hate it. And that was, you know, he paid a huge electoral price for it. Even though, you know, by the numbers, technically more people got health care, but it was a mess. Even I, you know, how many Obamacare plans you saw. My current plan is like, I have like a $19,000 deductible <laughs> or something. I'm like, well, I guess I hope I don't get hit by a bus. Um, but point with that being that a lot of people like their healthcare plan. The whole like, if you like your doctor, yeah. you keep your doctor. Wasn't true. Well, I think that the very much the same thing kind of came with our abortion policy. Everyone's like, yeah, it's icky, but you know, it's relatively whatever it's done and we'll just keep it that way. Right, and yeah.
1: if, if the 15-week ban was, it was national in the sense that, you could get an abortion up mm. to 15 weeks anywhere in the country mm-hmm. then you might have a, a little bit more support for it but what what 15 weeks says is no th- this is that's the, cap. that's the cap that's right but other but states We're, sorry
4: that's the ceiling not the floor
1: right so other yeah. states can then make it 6 weeks right. or or ban it completely and right. so then democrats and abortion rights advocates are like well We don't need that Mm -hmm. because we like all you're you're doing then is putting a 15 week abortion ban in New York and California. Exactly. Why would a Democrat
4: vote for that and allow cloture? Like here in in Washington, D.C., I'm pretty sure that you can get late term abortion, like basically whenever you want. Now, you know, I think that's, I don't agree with that. um, But my point is, like, why would somebody who lives in a state? who has like late-term abortion, sign a 15-week ban, they're like, no, I'm gonna campaign Mm. against this because you're basically making it so that everybody can go under if they want to, but not over if they want to. I actually kind of do believe in the whole leave it up to the states thing because if you genuinely did leave it up to the states, quote-unquote, like, genuine no abortion would really only exist in like four states in the whole, maybe five, like, in the whole Mm. country after the democratic process kind of works its way out. I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, ironically, this is what I've said, I've told this to my own pro-life friends, we probably will end up with more contraception and more abortion access in the United States post-Roe, let's say 10 years from now. Just given the way that, look at what just happened with the FDA. The FDA just approved Mm over-the-counter birth control. That has never happened. That no way that happens without Roe versus Wade.
1: Although there's been a pretty successful effort to uh, close abortion clinics. And people, for, people yeah. forget about, people think about it just on a, on a policy level and a legal level, but there's also a kind of structural operational level mm-hmm. that you have to have uh, doctors who are trained to perform of abortion yeah, services. Yeah, and then you have to have clinics that are, that are able to right. actually serve clients. And be, as you have the laws in all of these different states constricting them, they, they're closing and, and that doesn't, and then you lose a lot of legacy expertise. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, you may end up, uh, with much less, depending on how things go. But yes, in 2024, this this is going to be a huge. This is going to be a huge issue. Uh, this and, is
4: the, in my opinion, yeah. this is the issue. Because, and I, I don't want it to be. I never wanted it. I, I think the more you argue about guns and abortion, the more I feel like I'm five years old living in Texas again. But you're yeah. the ones who overturned it, so you got you got to defend it. Yeah. You know, for the American people. And I think that that is one where. We have seen now state after state, referenda after referenda, election after election, abortion mattered so much more, frankly, than I ever thought possible, Mm -hmm. more than Crystal thought possible. Maybe you, too, going into 2020 when we were all here at the desk. who, Who thought that? Yeah, when, when the midterm results were happening.
1: And and throughout Trump's first term, whenever he was in a jam, if you noticed,
4: mm-hmm.
1: he would turn to the evangelical movement. Absolutely. Th- those, yeah. those were his people. They had his
4: back. Yeah. And
1: because he loves nothing more than loyalty.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Whether he agrees with you or not, I think he, he has complete contempt for them. But he loves the fact that they're loyal right. to him. And so they became his favorite people. Now I think he's... Bothered, he's like, "What is going on here? Like, why? Why are these people not loyal to me anymore? I gave them everything they want because he can't get in their minds right. that they are just ideologically and religiously driven uh, m- movement that is not stopping because it doesn't poll well."
4: Okay. Look, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a bind. Been saying it now ever since the twenty twenty two election results and Trump's answer. I I you know why I find this so interesting. I respect Trump as a politician. So when I see him floundering like that, yes. I'm like, man, you got 11 months and that's the best he could come up with. Because there is no this good This is answer. not going to be good for you.
1: Because he can he yeah. can either do the politically right. smart You're damned thing, if you
4: do and damned if you don't. Which is yeah. to
1: be for abortion rights. Right. But yep. he can't do that. He can't do that. He can't totally disavow what he did. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's... It's going to be a tough a
4: tough gig. All right, let's go to Ukraine. This, again, was actually one of the best moments of the entire night, uh, policy-wise, and possibly the most consequential should Trump ever become president. Again, it started with a voter. It's interesting how that works. He was very concerned about the amount of money going to Ukraine and wanted to know what President Trump thought about it. And then Caitlyn decided to insert herself into some sort of win-lose situation for Trump's mm. policy whenever it came to diplomacy. Here's the full exchange. Let's take a listen.
0: The current administration has made it clear that we should continue to provide military equipment to Ukraine so that they can defend themselves. Do you support this decision? And how would you deal with the increasing threat posed by Vladimir Putin?
5: First of all, thank you very much. It's really nice. And it's an important question, so important, because we're giving away so much equipment. We don't have ammunition for ourselves right now. We don't have ammunition for ourselves. We're giving away so much. Absolutely. Do you want
3: Ukraine to win this war?
5: Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all these people and breaking down this, this country. Now, what do you... Can I just follow up on that? You
3: said you don't think in terms, have terms to do of winning you and have losing. To get the, you have Mr. President, can I just follow up on that because that's a really important no, excuse statement me, let me just, you just follow made up. There. Can you say if you want Ukraine or Russia to win this war?
5: I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying, Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. And I'll have that done. I'll have that done in 24 hours. I'll have it done. When
3: it comes to what's happening there, when you were in office, you said that you respected President Putin. Do yeah, you I still don't. respect him today?
5: Uh, he made a tremendous mistake. Made a, he, made, he was a smart guy, you know. I remember I said he was smart, she was smart. Putin made a bad mistake, in my opinion. What was his it mistake? His mistake was going in. He would have never gone in if I was president. We used to talk about it there.
4: Okay, so uh, he made a mistake. He's not endorsing the Russian position. By going in. Well, first he's like, he never should have done it and never would have happened if I had been there. Of course, so that's the starting point. Second, he made a huge mistake. Third, this was the most thoughtful answer I've seen a US politician make yet. Mm -hmm. There is no winning. I want people to stop dying whenever he says the other you know funny thing is is that if you say quote i want ukraine to win this war well what does that mean do you want ukraine to invade russia do you want Ukraine to fully take back all of its territory pre-2022 or pre-2012? Or because those are yeah, actually, or, yeah, yeah or, you you know, which borders, you know, what, it's like talking about Israel, They're like, with well, settlements, I'm like, well, 67, 45, whatever. You yeah. know, it's like, Balfour Declaration, They're like, well, there's a lot of different ways mm-hmm. that we could talk about it, right? And that's why it's a nuanced answer. It was the best answer I've heard yet. I want everyone to stop dying. I wanna bring the conflict to an end, and actually, the admission by the press and by the freak out over this is that anything that you say where I want the war to end and not necessarily 100% on the terms that Ukraine wants is some sort of capitulation towards Russia. That's the ludicrous part of the of the reaction.
1: Yeah, the, to say I don't think in terms of winning and losing is a genuinely kind of nuanced yes. and enlightened way to think about war and peace. Right. I, taking a controversial anti-death position right he wants that he wants right. people to stop dying right. if you went back to the Vietnam era mm-hmm. you would you would see uh, You would see the media coming after a president saying who was against the war saying what you don't want South Vietnam to win Right, that's like, right. well. What, what does that mean South yeah. Vietnam to win? Does it mean we're gonna take over all of South Vietnam mm-hmm. and Run out all of the grills. Does it mean, we're gonna take over North Vietnam and unify the Country Good if, point. if you said at the time I don't think in terms in Vietnam of winning and losing. I think of stopping the death. Right. And you accomplished that policy agenda. There would be millions, millions of Vietnamese that were that were still alive as yes. a result of that.
4: Yeah. Or uh, think about the Korean War, or any of these other. These are right. messy conflicts. The borders. Right. It's, moved, South Korea never and won. Yeah. Exactly. Well, words. I mean, just in my opinion, right they did. Right. They right. ended the war and they became one of the most right. prosperous nations and developed nations on earth. They literally sell us cell phones and cars. I mean, after it worked whole, out for them. After like, a whole
1: bunch of military dictatorships and death yeah. squads. But True. Yes. <laughs> okay, but I'm just going to say,
4: like, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, like, they yeah. first, and they gave me K-pop, all right? So there you go. They gave me BTS. So, at yeah. the very least, they absolutely did win. People, yeah. you know, in North Korea, I'm pretty sure they're cracking down on K-pop because they view it as some sort of cultural. My mm-hmm. point being that, like, win, lose. If, right. if, I, if you talk to people in South Korea today, they're like, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're glad that it came it's also, to the you, conclusion that it If you
1: go to Vietnam today.
4: Yeah, they don't even care about us. They don't think about the... the there's there's
1: gigantic Coca-Cola billboards. You're like, what was this war over? Mm-hmm. We we lost, mm-hmm. but it doesn't look much different than it would if we won.
4: And you know, I think the most gracious thing about the Vietnamese is that they really don't hold it that right. very much against you, yeah. which I think is nuts. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, having spent some time 2 million Southeast people, Asia, and they're like yeah, I personally could yeah. not imagine you know having yeah exactly. And not that long ago, I mean you know yeah. a life not. It, for example, when I when you watch uh, the Ken Burns documentary and you're watching the people who fought in the Vietnamese mm-hmm. War. Both on the American side, but on the Vietnamese side, and you're yeah. like, wow, they're they're just they're talking yeah. like they're boomers, right. Yeah, they yeah. don't even exactly. They're literally they yeah. probably got 20, 30 years left. Yeah. Uh, I know I actually have fa- uh, well future family members who fought in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and you know it's actually kind of interesting for me because I'm like, hey, tell me what was that like? You know, in 1968, mm-hmm. like what, what was America like and life like kind of at that time? But the fact that I could do that about a, that conflict, and then you know, fifty-something something years later, still be in a place. Um, where those people who you know descendants, maybe fathers, even grandfathers who were shot, killed, maimed, burned to death, whatever, uh, don't you know, hold it against the? I I think really what we're trying to say is these are messy. Making policy on deterministic statements like win lose miss the point. Unless you're Ukrainian. And I think that's where I can have some sympathy. That's absolutely right. If you're Ukrainian, you are free to do whatever you want. And if I were you, uh, by the way, I would think the exact same thing. But I'm not you. You know, we're us. We get to decide, like, to the extent that this marginal conflict matters at all to our lives, to our national policy, to these billions of dollars, and to our own national security, how and what we treat that. And that's, you know, people don't like to hear that, but. Sorry, like I, I don't know what to say. Ukraine really doesn't matter to the fate of America, either and, way. And I it's think, nice when you help them, but that's pretty much it. I think if Biden,
1: yeah. if Biden can get the war to a resolution right. over the course of the next year, uh, so that's you know, just from a crass, cynical electoral right. perspective, he, he'd be in better shape. Oh, there's no way to, to strike, yeah, if he, he can strike some gas kind prices, of after, chain. after whatever this uh, yeah. counteroffensive is, everyone can
4: breathe yeah. a little bit. Be like. ah. Oh. Okay, yeah. And, and, on the and there counter- will probably another. We don't know how it's going to work.
1: Doesn't mean there won't be another war in 10 years. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, yeah, then but, what? another but hundred. But,
1: mill. you know, uh, there's, there's, you can't stop that Any. Anyway. To the
4: point about the freak out, we probably should have put this up there earlier. Put this up there on the screen. But we're, we're having such a good time. We're talking. Uh, Adam Kinziger, you know, the freak out on the Republican side, for Trump not to say he wants Ukraine to win, is insane. Chris Christie calling him Putin's puppet. Donald Trump says he would end the war in Ukraine in 24 hours. Despite how ridiculous this is to say, I suspect he would try to do it by turning Ukraine over to Putin and Russia. Hashtag Putin's puppet. Chris Christie taking a little bit of a book out of Boomer Mom's resistance Twitter. Uh, how How's that going to work out in a Republican primary? Interesting, right? That That yeah.
1: struck me as his signal that either he's not definitely not running for president. Uh, uh-huh or thinks that there's some lane that doesn't exist. What did you make of that Putin's puppet?
4: Oh, I just thought it was so foolish, and outrageous, ridiculous, uh, both on its face and politically. I think Chris Christie loves the one thing that he's always been pretty good at, and that's called attention. And guess what? Mm -hmm. We're talking about it, and so was all of the major networks. So now he gets to go on ABC as a contributor, and CNN, and everywhere else, and they all get to do segments about how Chris Christie called Trump Putin's puppet. And I think that's really the only currency he's ever cared about. So I guess congratulations to Chris, you know, congratulations. Enough of Trump. Let's talk about the news um, and Title 42. So let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. The United States is currently finalizing asylum restrictions to ramp up border deportations after Title 42 collapses. Let's spend some time, Ryan, first on Title 42. What is Title 42? Title 42 was the emergency, quote unquote, emergency policy that has been in effect now for three years at the southern border, which gives the United States, based on pandemic CDC-related guidance, to expel migrants who cross the U.S.-Mexico border, regardless of their asylum status, return them to Mexico, basically pre Biden, we were at a status quo during COVID of the Remain in Mexico policy combined with Title 42, which significantly reduced the number of border crossings. Now, what is Remain in Mexico? Because this is also something that we need to discuss. Remain in Mexico is a policy through which Central American migrants, or really migrants from anywhere, who travel through Mexico to the United States to claim safe harbor status must, instead of applying for asylum, in the United States as previous law and policy dictated where they would remain, again, remain in America. Eventually through some sort of catch and release program were basically released into the wild and said show up at a court in four years, something like that. Mm -hmm. A lot of them didn't show up or a lot of them would show up to one hearing but then when they found out that the asylum hearing wasn't gonna take it, then they wouldn't show up at all and it was a basically backdoor illegal immigration. All right, so that was the previous policy. Remain in Mexico was instituted by the Trump administration. That said, you cannot apply for asylum in America. You have to remain in Mexico while you do so. U.S. asylum officers and others would hear your claim, it would be adjudicated in the United States, and whether you got asylum or not, would then happen in America and post-asylum status, if granted, you were allowed to remain. If not, otherwise, you return to your country of origin. All right, so Biden came into office and said one thing. I'm gonna end Remain in Mexico, but I'm gonna keep Title 42. Title 42, in my opinion, was a political blessing to him because he didn't have to deal with it for something, two and a half years. He basically got to continue the policy of expulsion, of not as much cash and release and all that. Then what happened? In the latest congressional session, there was an official end to the pandemic. by ending the pandemic, the emergency pandemic, you also end and sunset Title 42. Now with the end of Title 42, Tens of thousands of migrants from across Central America and even South America, a lot of these people are coming from Venezuela now Mm -hmm. at this point, um, have transferred via Central America, via Mexico, and are on the other side of the border waiting for today because they know that they can no longer be expelled under pandemic authority. Now, a flood of migrants was predicted. The reason why is because we were going to previously, if this change had not come into place, return to catch and release policy, where these people would come to the United States, they would be given a court date, they'd be like, I fear for my life, or something like that. And they would be like, okay, show up at court in four years. And by the way, here's a work license and you can go do whatever you want. Um, Now, what Biden has done is the one thing, Ryan, he promised not to do. He has effectively brought back Mm -hmm. the Remain in Mexico policy by using the asylum restriction that we just showed you, where the new restriction will ramp up swift deportation of migrants who come across the U.S.-Mexico border by deploying U.S. asylum officers and saying that they will have to basically go to Mexico and request refugee status, quote, in another country on their journey to the southern border before they will be heard their asylum case in the U.S. So, Biden promised on the campaign trail not to do this. He tried every which way to get out of it, to get this, this way, that way, and all of that. And now we're basically right back to where we started after three years of Biden saying he's not going to do anything that Trump did at the border. And on top of that, Ryan, he's deploying 1,500 active U.S. duty military troops yeah. to the southern border. Can you imagine the freak out if Trump was president, if that was happening?
1: So that well, anyway, we don't have I, to imagine oh, it. Your reaction. There, there your was reaction. a freak out. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fair. Uh, Appropriately, so I think one tweak. i I'm Not, I'm not hundred percent sure on this. People uh-huh. could maybe correct on, in, correct me in the comments. Sure. I don't think you can get a work visa when you get released. So um, maybe we can figure that. Right. Maybe we can figure this Catch out. Catch and
4: release. It, I mean, it depends on the status. It's like a work permit. Just that just you to have clear. So uh, here is the investigation, the most yeah. dis- uh, the ones who will be harmed. Uh, basically, the Biden administration denies it is granting employment authorization. However, uh, recent uh, articles suggest that at least some of migrants are being issued work documents at the time that they are being released so some are from CB- them, CBP uh, custody. I'm not 100% sure. Under Section 235B of the Immigration and Nationality Act, DHS is required to detain all aliens from the point at which they are encountered to the time that they are removed or granted status in the United States. However, with the increase of the border Mm -hmm. emergency catch and release policy, it has led to some instances through which work permits and work authorization is uh, permitted on a case-by-case basis. So that's where we're at.
1: And to me, if somebody's in the country, they should have work authorization. Like, it's bizarre... Otherwise, like, well,
4: it depends. If you're here illegally, yeah. I don't know about that, right? Because then that basically is the uh, incentive. Is like as long as you can get here, then you get to work and you get to pay social security and all that. I mean, personally, I have a problem with that in terms of our immigration law. I yeah, was,
1: I was going to do my monologue yeah. today on uh, sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela. Yes, so please which we, break that down. Which, for which we dumped it yeah. for so that we could uh, talk uh-huh. more about the the town hall from last night. But so there was a letter, and we talked about this briefly with Rocana uh-huh. yesterday, who signed this letter. So Veronica Escobar, who is the uh, congresswoman from El Paso, so one of the border towns that yes. deals with this.
4: Basically in a state of emergency like,
1: right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so she led this letter, um, and it comes after a, a report by the Center for Economic uh, Policy and Research that that expansively studied the, the consequences of, of sanctions and found that they they have they do not perform the political function that people mm-hmm. are that claiming that they're going to perform, which is to pressure a government into you know, bending its will to the United States, but they do immiserate e- economically the population of the country. Mm-hmm. They they don't really hurt the elites. They only ensconce the elites. Venezuela's envoy, Venezuela's opposition envoy, so this is the pro-U.S. Mm-hmm. dude who's here in, in Washington uh, trying to, you know, rally support for Uh, You know, whoever the next Juan Guaido is, who who we're going to like back in whatever coup attempt we try again in the future. He came out and said, I really do not uh, think that is a good idea if these sanctions on Venezuela continue. Because what you're going to do is you're going to create a political issue uh, for Florida politicians.
4: Which is true, and
1: yeah. <laughs> and you're going to ensconce the Venezuelan elite and leadership in power. the The claim is that you're going to be hurting mm-hmm. Venezuelan political leadership with these sanctions, but in fact, it just stunts the economy, uh, and it and it stunts any ability uh, for the for that economy to grow, which is kind of a, a prerequisite for producing an opposition, uh, and it otherwise creates a kind of calcified situation. If Sanctions and embargoes were going to do anything. Uh, you would not have the same government in power in Cuba right. that you had seventy years ago. Yeah. And so what we're and Ben Ben Rhodes, who was Obama's Obama's national yeah, security foreign advisor, foreign policy advisor, now yeah. now a, uh, a, a pod, pod Save bro, bro uh, <laughs> who the, the Pod Save bros have been on a roll lately on right. a, on a bunch of stuff. And and he he made a, he made a great point. Uh-huh. He's like and and he gets listened to in the Biden administration. So it's important what he says. He was like, so we currently have a policy of producing economic catastrophes in Cuba and Venezuela that then produce out-migration flows. And then we're going to close the border and punt them back to Mexico. It's like, what? what? I mean, now, I'm sure some viewers are like, we don't close the border. It's wide open. Whatever. The, The policy is that they're not... Mm-hmm. Opening the border and and granting asylum to every Cuban and, and Venezuelan, yet we're also producing migration crises out of those countries. He's like, do one or the other. So his argument is like, enough with these sanctions. Like, so I make agree these with countries. That, I agree with that. The
4: only reason why I do think it is COPE, at least on the part of a lot of liberals, is this comes to the heart of the idea that we are like solely responsible for like whatever's going on in Central and South America, to which I just fundamentally reject. Crystal and I have had this debate a million times, but like, listen, you know, it's like the CIA Sandinista coup was like like 50 years ago, or what, 40 years ago. Actually, maybe more, um, now that I think about it. I just don't think that that is the major cause of migration to the United States. Like El Salvador being drug infested is its own problem. Like that's a problem that yes, America has contributed to somewhat, but democratically they have decided to come up with a solution. Uh, You may not like that solution, but they have it certainly in place right now with what's going on there. And I look at it. I don't even disagree. I actually do think we should probably remove these sanctions if that is what's contributing. At the same time, though, to me, it's ludicrous that we don't have something called a safe third country agreement with Mexico. So what people don't understand is if you were to traverse the United States and go to Canada to request asylum, they would reject your asylum claim because America is a safe third country, as in under UN, the UN refugee asylum law or whatever, if you are declared a safe third country and we have an agreement in between states, they would say, no, we're not accepting your asylum claim in Canada because you should have applied in America. Well. The reason why people are able to traverse Mexico and enter America is that Mexico is not a declared safe third country. Now, unfortunately for our purposes, for to get Mexico to become a safe third country agreement, we would have to get them to agree they're a safe third country. And why would they agree to that? They don't want to deal with all the asylum down on their Guatemalan border just as much as we don't want to deal with what's going on down there too. So I would look at it two things agree we should reduce migration, but I also think the idea that these people are, quote unquote, fleeing for their lives is ludicrous because here's the truth, ask them yourselves. They're coming here for economic migration. And that's legitimate. That's fine. By the my yeah. parents came here for economic, right. uh, for economic reasons, but they had to go through a legal process. And my point is that you don't get to just decide you want to come to America. You have to apply. It's onerous. Now you can just debate whether it should be easier or not. Um, I think that the way we do immigration is stupid because it's mostly family-based, called chain migration. It should be more based on skills and on merit. But my point is, is that we all need to be more honest here. They're coming here for economic reasons. Right. That you're not, you know, like the people are like, oh, we're fleeing violence, fleeing domestic abuse. By that standard, any person who's ever been in a domestically violent situation would qualify for asylum in the United States. That's like a billion people, right? I mean, it's, it's right. just not gonna work. It's not practicable
1: right. for, and for and having
4: a genuine system.
1: Right, and if that's true, then we should yeah. just lift the sanctions. Like, because what are the... I'm st- with you, right. Yeah, like... Right, and, yeah. and, and I'm sure yeah. you've had this argument a thousand right. times, like you said, with Crystal, but I would just add like the, the Hillary Clinton's you know, basically, you know, coup in Honduras was what mm-hmm. 2009. Uh, the the yeah. Guatemalan dirty war didn't end until the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Uh, El Salvador's gang problem comes from the mass deportation right. of gang members right. from yeah, but they the were United here States. illegally.
4: Like we're not, but we're just not. But why were to they here? Them?
1: Why were they here illegally? Because yeah. <laughs> we we backed the dirty war in the 1980s. That's, I mean, well, we they also,
4: they had their own problems, Ryan. They had big uh, earthquakes and all these other natural they had disasters, to. which crashed. I'm just saying, it's not all America's fault. First, mm-hmm. this is why I always point to, why is Costa Rica doing so well?
1: We have, didn't, we didn't yeah. coup them. And, okay, we didn't, and we didn't create a dirty war there. Costa Rica's in
4: the same place. Geographically, they have the same, uh, you know, issue. they have no military. They have no problems going exactly. on. Exactly. No, yeah.
1: no U.S.-backed military. Well, like, I mean, it, to know. be
4: fair, we basically guarantee their security. So it's not like so it's, not, just, America doesn't have. So let's the, do that right. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if I wanted to guarantee security for all these places. Well, you're yeah.
1: you're, you're you 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 do not get anything for free. Like yeah. and this is also the coming coming to roost of our hollowing out of our middle class. Mm-hmm. Because the deal that we made with our, our middle class and our manufacturing base was that we're gonna destroy our capacity Correct. to like produce here in the United States, but in exchange, you're gonna get a lot of cheap crap. Mm-hmm. Cheap toys, cheap bananas,
4: which cheap. is mostly made in Mexico or China, and it,
1: yeah. it's going to be made in Mexico. And then once that gets uh, too expensive, it's going to be made in, in Central America. Mm-hmm. And in order to make it in Central America, we're going to have to prop up vicious right wing dictators who are going to, uh, you know, pr- who are who are going to run death squads. They're going to kill union organizers, and we're going to make sure that unions and and leftists cannot gain power in these countries uh, because that would raise the price of consumer goods. And if consumer goods are more expensive, then we can't hollow out our industrial core. And so the result of that is these kind of desiccated Central American and South American uh, countries, which are now sending people uh, flooding north.
4: Certainly, yeah, look, I'm not gonna deny that America didn't roll. I don't think we're the sole cause of all their problems. But I also think, here's the other issue, uh, and I always think about this, by the idea that like, America, if it was America's fault that Central American nations are all this way, then why is it fair for Central Americans to be able to come here and get asylum, just because they can walk here, and not Iraq. I mean, by, in, by that standard, every Iraqi should be able to get asylum in the United. They've had way more of a right to it, I think, than anybody else. I'm not. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm saying, though, by that standard, it's not really fair because Iraqis can't f- just walk here, and they probably would come if they could. Uh, actually, some people at the border are actually are from the Middle East, ironically enough. Um, so, anyway, I think that. Ideologically, yeah. I understand where people are coming from. Nobody's saying you don't have compassion. I got compassion for anybody who wants to come to this country. I've been all over this world and everybody, you know, anytime you meet somebody, and especially in a developing situation, I was like, wow, America, I would love to go there sometime. And I think that's great, I, I really do. But that doesn't mean though that everybody does have the right to come here. And I think that is where a lot of people have the presumption. And if we have the standard of which, well, if you're fleeing, you know, third world status, I mean, that's, there's what, 4 billion people or whatever who live um, in that. Blend. So we got to have a law. You got to have a standard. And then we get to decide what that standard is. We did so in 1965. That's the last time that we really had a wholesale change of our U.S. immigration system. And I, I yeah. think it, everything should be up for debate, you know, everything they were talking about here. So I appreciate the conversation, though, Ryan. It actually was a uh, I think it was thoughtful and people uh, will-
1: We can c- agree on lifting the sanctions, right? Sure,
4: absolutely. Yeah. I, I think actually a lot Good of right-wingers outside, yeah. of, outside of the Florida uh, right. people. <laughs> and would. you guys
1: are done because it's not a swing state anymore. So we don't want to hear from you.
4: Leave us a comment and let us know what you think. Okay, let's go to the second one here. Unless you're from
1: Florida, uh, not yeah, interested. Unless so you're from
4: Florida. Yeah. Although, I, trust me, yeah. they'll- My DMs get very full of Cubans every time we talk about this. All right, let's go ahead uh, to the last part here and talk about Tucker Carlson, Don Lemon, Elon Musk and everything that is happening there. We didn't wanna make it all just about CNN, did we? So ironically, uh, after Tucker announced that he's coming to Twitter, I did that breaking news segment for everybody. uh, Elon actually is now inviting Don Lemon onto the platform. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Elon invites ex-CNN anchor Don Lemon to host a show on Twitter. He replied to one of his tweets, Have you considered doing your show on this platform? Maybe worth a try. Audience is much bigger. And uh, this all comes amid questions around how the Tucker show is gonna work and Elon making Twitter into a place for long-form video and podcasting. Uh, Cards on the table. I am personally skeptical that this is gonna work out. And listen, I I think Elon is a legendary uh, engineer and all of that. Here's the, if anybody could do it, maybe it could be him. Here are the reasons why it would be trepidatious. Number one, they already tried video on Twitter and Facebook. It was called the pivot to video. I actually lived through it (laughs) and watched it fail. There was a show called AM2DM, which was by BuzzFeed News, that was on Twitter. It was like a morning show on Twitter. It was a horrendous failure. It was a disaster. <laughs> now, that said, those hosts were not talented, and Tucker is, you know, by, look, you can hate the man, but you can you can very, very least, you have to agree, he's good at what he does. So generational talent, much better at what he does, built-in audience, built-in um, elite interest, right, mm-hmm. that's going to be there not in the same way. My question is about the long-term sustainability. You know, the hot news around launching, that only lasts, I mean, how long did it last year at Breaking Points? Maybe two weeks before we were into you know, kind of a rhythm. You gotta have the tools and the platform, the ability to be able to watch long-form content Mm -hmm. and consume long-form content. And my concern around Twitter is is that when you're scrolling, Especially Twitter video. Like, if you watch Twitter video, what's what are the videos you watch on Twitter? For me, it's news clips and then like brawls in the middle of street <laughs> yes, lately, randomly. Lately get a bunch of brawls. Get, yeah, brawls <laughs> like so and so smack so and so in the face, or a but, camel
1: walking across the or street, or a camel,
4: or like a, no. a turtle. Or <laughs> if my fiance is DMing me cat videos, um, <laughs> as I'm watching these. But here's something universal I've noticed with my Twitter video consumption: I very rarely listen to the clip. I hover right. over it. I watch what happens, I, I grin, and then I cre- keep scrolling. Yes. That's not really what's happening here on YouTube. The vast majority of the people who are watching this clip clicked on it and are doing so intentionally. A lot of them are watching it on their phone. They've got their earbuds in, they're sitting there, and they're locked into what you and I are saying. They're locked into a, uni- yeah. a long-form thing. They don't even have the ability, really, to scroll if they don't want to, unless, I guess, if you have YouTube Premium or whatever. The point being that whenever you are watching a YouTube clip the platform is designed around watching right. and retention. Twitter is designed for something else. Not saying, again, he can't do it, just that Facebook tried this too. Their whole pivot to mm-hmm. video, they had the Mike.com, you remember this? Oh, yes. All those shows. When I worked at the Daily Caller, oh, my God, guys. We they were showering money on yes, news exactly. outlets. We were going all in on Facebook. And then overnight, they decided to just drop it and nuked a bunch of company. So what do you make of it because you let you lived through all of yes. this just like I did.
1: Yes, yeah. it's it goes to the question of first screen, second screen and uh, so YouTube is like a first screen mm-hmm. where or and your television is like a first screen. It's like yep. that's the thing that right. you're primarily watching. Your second a second screen app is something that you're messing with on the side. Mm-hmm. Twitter is a second screen app. It it is fed content which Tucker knows because he said that yes he he said in his uh video recently that cable produces the material that then we then talk about Mm -hmm. on twitter so it raises the question if you're watching tucker on twitter how do you tweet that's a good
4: point you got to. yeah how do you click and people's
1: fingers are going to be like shaking Mm -hmm. because because as people are watching on youtube right now if they have thoughts about what we're saying Mm -hmm. they, they go over to twitter and we be like, can you believe what Ryan said? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard.
4: Yes, and people do it all the time. Yeah.
1: But if you are watching it on Twitter, then you have to leave what you're watching in order to tweet. And people's, I think, impulse to post is so strong in this, in this distracted, scattered time mm-hmm. that we live in that they're not going to be able to maintain their attention through a 10-minute Tucker monologue because they want to comment on Here's
4: it. Here's a good point, too. Uh, to what we just made, 80% of all Twitter users are on a mobile device. 80 yes. percent right so then you got to think about whenever you're in the twitter experience in the app i'm watching a video but i also have tweets going by maybe underneath do i have a comments am i able to tweet underneath as a comment how does the comment system work can we upvote downvote? Mm-hmm. you know retweet you know reapply and all that we have all of that figured out on youtube on rumble on odyssey any of these video right. platforms and the thing is they're designed for video so it's just it just looks different to me. Once again, I'm not saying it can't be done. Right. I'm just raising all of the engineering yeah. like problems at a very first principles level that w- raised my mind of like, hmm, I don't know about this. Like I, this my immediate reaction is, wow, that's a gamble. Uh, a lot of I, some people contacted me. They're like, "It's not a gamble." Like Elon knows what he's doing. I'm like, I'm not even saying that. I'm just like, it doesn't exist yet, right? So yeah, it's by, by definition, definition it's, a, it's gamble. a gamble. Come on. Yeah, so Elon stands. Come on. I'm willing to see. Yeah. I mean, right now, I'll tell you what the main thing that annoys me is I can't speed up the clips. Drives me mm. nuts. I never watch right. a YouTube video at one X unless th- it's th- like your a movie. life draining out of you. Oh, I'm no. just like, oh my time. <laughs> like I have so many other things I could be doing at this moment. Um, but I'm one of those freaks who listens at three point five speed. So what do I know? Not on YouTube, on Spotify, because thanks to them for giving me that ability.
1: And Sagar speaks in 2x. I do speak in 2x.
4: People have told me that before. I Uh, speak in like .5x. Well, then we balance out. That means you should listen to us at 1.5, and then you'll get it at a very good good speed. Let's go to the second part here, uh, which is important. Put it up there on the screen there, guys. Please. Semaphore. um, Inside Tucker Carlson's new media plan. So this is pretty interesting. Really, it gets to one of the biggest questions, which is why did Tucker go to Twitter in the first place? And there's actually a fascinating contract piece which debuts inside of this. Inside of Tucker's contract with Fox, according to his people who leaked this to Semaphore, (coughs) he had a provision of his contract, Ryan, where he was allowed have personal control over his Twitter account. (laughs) So because of that, they have a better argument as Mm -hmm. to why a show on Twitter is not a breach of contract or non-compete. And so, what do we come to the conclusion of? This is a major reason why, not on top of the free speech and all Mm -hmm. this stuff that he talked about in his relationship with Elon, why he might have chosen to go with Twitter in the first place yeah. was specifically because they believed that A, they could sue Fox for violation of contract, but B, that Fox would have a harder time in court with some sort of cease and desist if they were to debut on Twitter in the first place. It actually makes yeah. perfect sense whenever you think about
1: it. Right. And whenever Fox signed that contract, A, they didn't think they'd be firing right. a Tucker, of but course. B, they didn't think Elon would be buying Twitter Good So because Elon buying Twitter Opens up the possibility for this to happen, e- even if it's true, which I don't necessarily believe that they don't have a deal. Right. Uh, e- even if that's true, the old Twitter would probably be like uh, throttling him.
4: Oh, of course, like, yeah, yeah. And, and it it would it, take him down. They'd deplatform him.
1: And so it wouldn't. Yeah. It wouldn't be the kind of uh, right. avenue that it is for him now. Right. And they also didn't see Elon's kind of pivot to video coming because they didn't see Elon coming. Mm-hmm. So, uh, with all that we said about the. Problems with Twitter as a as a first screen kind of video platform. Mm -hmm. If that's all you got because of this loophole in your contract, then yeah, by all means, (laughs) go for it. It'll it'll produce viral clips.
4: Yeah, there's no question.
1: Which perhaps is all he needs in order to stay relevant until he can get back on. Here was the quote
4: uh, that they say: Tucker prioritizes influence. Tucker Twitter allows him to not just be another podcaster to get in front of a large influential audience. He can get back to talking about the news quickly there. So that is frankly the only piece I totally disagree with. Um, And I am not saying that we have any influence. I wish we had more influence. I would love that um, if I did. But my thing is that it's like Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan seeks no influence, but because of his audience size, he has influence. So saying just another podcaster, in my opinion, is a little bit... uh, a little bit derogatory, yeah. not, not at us. I'm talking about at the podcasters right. who do have, I mean, Charlemagne the God is technically a podcaster. <laughs> I mean, guess what? He's an influential figure and his clips go viral no matter what. So I think what he's getting at is Republican politics. But here, once again, I want to quibble. Matt Walsh is a podcaster. In my opinion, he is probably the single most important person hmm. in the GOP outside of elected officials today. Uh, that's not an endorsement. I'm saying like, right. if you think Power. like, right. libs of TikTok is like, an account associated with Matt Walshism. Walsh, mm-hmm. with the what is a woman documentary, with his Twitter account, he basically single-handedly kind of started the Bud Light right. thing. You can't deny the results. Yeah. So that would be like me. That would be like saying that Matt Walsh is just a podcaster and has no influence. No, I mean, influence is not, you know being a podcaster has nothing to do with influence or not. Influence itself does. Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is one of the most influential people in Republican politics today, there's no question. In terms of the amount of young Republicans and others who consume his content, it's uh, off the chain. Tim Mm Pool, all these other people. And the way I know that Tim Pool is influential is I see Republican politicians on his show. Mm -hmm. Guess what? They wouldn't be going on his show if they didn't think that it mattered. If I see Matt Gates on a show, I'm like, yeah, he's influential. Uh, Steve Bannon is a podcaster. Do you believe that Steve Bannon doesn't have any influence? JD Vance who was on our show, mm-hmm. he was on War Room yesterday. Right. Why? Because of influence. That's yeah. the reason. So, influence is what you make of it, not what uh you, whether you're a podcaster or not. That's my only major quibble with this.
1: It is maybe a dated yeah. it is it is exposing, I think Tucker's somewhat dated like view a yeah, very cable news view. He, yeah. he's, he's a Washington creature, and I right. and I that's not a criticism right. or, or or not because I'm <laughs> so a Washington creature yeah. too. Uh, but so he has a little Washington brain there, mm-hmm. and that and he still thinks of Twitter as the place where you know pundits, politicians, and the elites are gathering. And even, it's
4: interesting to hear him kind of still want that. Even what he said in his video, remember when he, when you you brought up um, where he said Twitter is the place we talk about cable news. It's also the place that we talk about Matt Walsh. Mm-hmm. It's also the place that we talk about right. Ben Shapiro. It's a place right. where clips of all kinds go viral. Right. Our clips have gone viral before on Twitter, not always for the best reasons, uh, but, they go, <laughs> but they go viral. Uh, can't control that. Uh, people often actually will react. To the, most of the time when elites are reacting to our show, it's because of some stuff that right. went viral on Twitter. Nobody, None of them actually would watch the show. But my point is, is that Twitter is just a place to debate and to distribute and to mm-hmm. have influence. It's not just about cable. Sometimes it's about cable. Cable is fun you know, to dunk on. But people dunk on, you know, YouTubers are dunking on each other on Twitter all the time. Um, And my point is that it's just more about the function of the medium more than the clip itself. Also worth noting, Elon, according to Elon, let's put this up there on the screen, says he wants to be clear, quote, we have not signed a deal of any kind whatsoever Tucker is subject to the same rules and rewards of all content creators. Rewards means subscriptions and advertising revenue share, quote, coming soon, which is a function of how many people subscribe and the advertising views associated with the content. That actually gets to something we were just talking about, Ryan. Mm -hmm. Building out the ad share system that YouTube, I mean, the YouTube ad program is, what, 10 years in the making? Maybe more. And the algorithm and the cut and the way you think about all that is very difficult. I would also say if I were Tucker, I don't ever would want to be in a situation where I'm reliant on advertising revenue ever again given the amount of advertisers that boycotted his show. Right. So, you know, how do you know that advertisers aren't going to boycott on on Twitter or are going to be like don't you dare serve my content on the Tucker card. Now you're in the exact right. same boat. So, I mean, well, his, hopefully he has yeah. enough money he doesn't have to worry about this, but it is a concern, for
1: sure. His show is kind of the peak example of the thing that advertisers are scared mm-hmm. of, and Fox is out there claiming that they're now getting all this uh, extra advertising revenue into the 8, eight o'clock hour. Right. But broadly, politics in general is advertising kryptonite. Correct. And it, as we m- see
4: this on YouTube, for example, exactly. all the time. I'll take people uh, inside. When I talk to YouTubers who work in tech, their average CPM, uh, as in the amount of cost they get paid per video, not so that's RPM, revenue per uh, million or whatever see their average cpm on advertising in terms of the dollar amount that they're allowed to sell is s- double and sometimes triple mm-hmm. what we sell here on breaking points we don't sell anything youtube obviously does and you know why ours is less politics right. <laughs> politics is like, toxic
1: uh, the brands are like yes. yeah.
4: this is a reason we don't rely on advertisers because right. you know the only advertisers who care about politics who are they ryan people who want to influential the political process right. i ain't big, taking any big, big pharma big process oil. taking a dime from them either, either. in terms good. of uh, our support for CounterPoint. So, yeah, the point is is that that's not the way we run our business. Hence, we have a subscription revenue. Why there are pitfalls in this all in the first place. And, uh, yeah, it's a very, very interesting time. I've often said here, COVID opened my eyes to the corruption of the medical system. Before the pandemic, I thought some doctors' organizations were acting like idiots whenever it came to the culture war, like gender ideology. But you know, on most other areas, they could by and large be trusted, right? I knew pharma was corrupt on the drug front, but my eyes were not open to the totality of corruption in the entire field. Doctors both socially and financially doing what's in their best interest, medical journals being used as tools of the establishment, abandoning real science, and most important of all, the pervasion of money into the very root of the system. Since then, my eyes are now open. My default position now for doctors is, when you make a recommendation to me, prove it. Why do I actually need something? Why is it not part of a larger money-making scheme? And it's with that orientation that I saw an interesting piece of news pop up yesterday from five years ago I never would have thought anything about. Quote, New draft recommendations by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force that state that women who are between the ages of 40 and 74 should have screening mammograms every two years. The guidance is a big deal because previously biennial screening was not suggested for the age of 40, while those between the age of 40 and 50 were considered on a case-by-case basis. Now, according to them, because of increasing rates of breast cancer in the 40 to 50-year-old demographic, they're increasing screening recommendations for everyone. Pre-COVID Sager would have been like, okay, whatever, sounds reasonable on its face. Post-COVID, though, immediately I'm thinking this. Sounds like a multi-billion dollar gift to the mammogram industry and the doctors and the nurses who perform these procedures. So, am I right? Let's think about it a little bit, shall we? It only took me like 10 minutes to find that not even 10 years ago, doctors involved with women's health were singing a very different tune about mammogram screening. In 2015, a major study in health affairs analyzed 700,000 women from 2011 to 2013 between the ages of 40 to 59 who had routine mammograms. 11% of these women had, quote, suspicious mammograms and were subjected to further testing, including repeat mammograms, ultrasounds, and needle biopsies, quote, for nearly all these women, 98.6%, 98.6%, cancer was not confirmed in further testing. Now, that's crazy, right? But it actually gets crazier. The study authors found that false alarms for women for the entire female population over 40 was costing the United States $2.8 billion each year on follow-up test results for suspicious results that were not cancer. And that's just the dollars over-treatment was actually even more of a concern. They said that even when cancer was detected, those tumors might be of low risk to the patient, but that once were suspicious, suspicions were raised, over-treatment was the result, including mastectomy, chemotherapy, radiation in women who may not have needed any medical treatment at all otherwise. A similar finding actually occurred in a major study of Danish and Norwegian women. Just last year, they found that, quote, the advantages of breast cancer screenings have steadily diminished to the point where they are no longer outweighed by the costs associated with overdiagnosis and overtreatment. The study reasoned that, quote, one in five women receive a superfluous diagnosis because of screening that they would never have noticed or felt that they had breast cancer during their entire lifetime, which leads to painful overtreatment and higher costs of tests. In fact, the Breast Cancer Action Network is a group based in the U.S. which is entirely premised on providing women with an average chance of breast cancer with facts like this. Consider this graphic that they actually produce. If a group of 1,050 year old women is screened over the next 10 years, 100 will get a false positive, 23 will get breast cancer, five will die with or without screening, one will die without screening, but five will be diagnosed with cancer. That will never be life-threatening or require treatment, to be clear. The group and people who are raising awareness about this actually do care a lot, though, about preventing breast cancer. But instead, they want people to focus on what prevention will actually look like and stop it in the first place that will be less toxic and more affordable both for them and for all of us. That's the final and most important point. The average cost of a mammogram in the United States is somewhere around $500. Now, considering the biennial recommendation, that's $250 a year for women from the age of 40 onwards. That is tens of billions of dollars a year paid in fat insurance premiums to the health insurance companies who give it away to the healthcare industry, and none of it makes the difference that they say that it will make. That's the issue with our medical system in a nutshell. We don't even focus on real prevention. Everything ranging from exercise, obesity, proper diet, a myriad of prevention techniques which other doctors like Dr. Vinay Prasad can tell you about. Reducing all-cause mortality on cancer specifically. And instead though, we're spending billions on programs supposedly to help, but may do just as much harm instead. This is a common theme these days with so-called screening practices recommended by doctors. It reminds me of colonoscopies. That practice was recommended to millions of men now for years as massively effective. It didn't really work that well, though, at all when it had a gold standard trial. It only reduced their colon cancer risk by one-fifth, way below the previous estimates of the test's efficacy, and, quote, didn't provide any significant reduction in colon cancer mortality. Modern medicine is premised on the idea that technology has conquered biology. It's what justifies their secret knowledge and their primacy in society. In some cases, that is true, but it's not always true. And this case highlights why all of the US and all of us must take back responsibility for our own health. Doctors and medical associations do not get to make decisions for us, we do. It is on everyone do research, ask questions, because if you don't, we are going to keep getting swindled in the name of keeping us all healthier. What did you make of this, Ryan? It's something that I'd never thought about.
3: And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com.
4: Let's get to our interview with Senator J.D. Vance. I do want to say this because I believe that this is ethical. I have a previous prior relationship with Senator Vance. I think that anybody who sees me interview him should know that. We were personal friends years before um, he ever ran for the Senate. That being said, I tried my best in this interview, and Ryan Grimm was there to help me be accountable. Let's get to it. Joining us now, our guest, Senator JD Vance of Ohio. It's great to see you, sir. Thanks Good for joining to see you. us. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the Railway Safety Act. Uh, sure. We're actually going to talk about some policy on television. It's a shocking <laughs> thing. It's going to put it up there on the screen. Senator uh, President Trump actually endorsed bill. He said, crooked Joe Biden has still not visited the incredible patriots of East Palestine. Our movement will be their voice. We will never forget them. J.D. Vance has been working hard in the Senate to make sure something like this never happens again. That's why it's so important for Congress to pass his Railway Safety Act. So, J.D., tell us a little bit about this bill that has now been uniquely endorsed by President Trump and President Biden. Never seen anything like it.
2: Yes. Yeah, so first of all, it's one of the weird ways in which President Trump has sort of reoriented the Republican Party. It's hard mm-hmm. to imagine a Republican president 10 years ago coming out and endorsing a legislation like this. But it's pretty simple and straightforward. So, number one, East Palestine had this terrible problem, terrible train crash and a chemical fire afterwards, and the firefighters had no idea what they were dealing with as they went in to fight the fire. Right, Changes the notice requirements change that. The second thing is it enhances the safety and inspection requirements so hopefully the next East Palestine doesn't happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, this has caused the railway lobby and the usual suspects in Washington, D.C. to come out against it. And in a lot of ways, I think it illustrates a broader fight that's happening within the conservative movement right now, which is, do we stand up for the people who sent us to Washington or do we stand up for the special interests who have dominated conservative politics for so long? Uh, I'm very gratified that we've got a lot of good bipartisan support. I think we're gonna get it out of the Senate and then of course, onto the House.
4: Okay. Well, what I'm interested in is the intra-Republican fight. Let's go ahead and put this up there yeah. on the screen, please. We've got uh, Ted Cruz coming out saying he will not be uh, – he's going to oppose the Bipartisan Railway Safety Act. I know that there was some uh, discussion in Markup in which he called what he was saying ridiculous. Talk and break down a little bit about why what he was saying was ridiculous.
2: Well, look, Ted Cruz is a friend, right? He's sure. one of the few people that I knew in the Senate before I got to Washington. But I, 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 I think the, the fundamental argument here that Ted made is – He doesn't like the fact that the the bill gives any discretion or any authority uh, to uh, the Biden administration, right? Well, the Biden administration enforces the laws. Mm -hmm. So I've been saying for the past three months, and a lot of Republicans have been echoing me, the Biden administration needs to do more. So here's a piece of legislation that forces the Biden administration to do more. You can't, on the one hand, say they're not doing enough, and on the other hand, fight a piece of legislation that forces them to actually take action. Uh, there, there's a deeper problem here, which is if you think that we're going to have to fight back against corporate America, against big tech, against the pharmaceutical industry, if you think we're going to have to do these things, well, the government's pretty much the only path in town. That is the representation of the people. That is the entity that has the actual authority and the power to go after something like a big tech or like the railway industry, so you've got to be willing to use the power that the people gave us under this constitutional system. And and I understand people are reactive, and look, sometimes, of course, the government, oftentimes, the government does things it shouldn't do. Sometimes it fights progressive battles that it shouldn't fight, but if we're going to win the argument, we have to be willing to actually use the levers of power and use what the people gave us. That's what this fight is all about. And I'm wondering about the partisan politics
1: a little bit, because about six years ago, uh, Rob Portman, former senator from Ohio, was working with Democrats on an opioid treatment bill. And Democratic leadership really did not want Democrats working with him on yeah. this because they didn't want him to get a win in an election year. Sure. And I'm wondering, you know, Sherrod Brown is one of your uh, is one of your co-sponsors on this bill. He's up for re-election. Have you gotten any pressure from kind of Republican establishment forces saying, what are you doing? You're just going to help. You're going to help Democrats get elected here.
2: No, not, not at all, actually. I, I've, I've wondered about that, but everybody's pretty much given me the line of, look, you have to serve your constituents. This is a very, very important issue to the people of Ohio, and so you have to work on it. And so I, I've gotten no pressure on, on that front. I mean, look, I'm a Republican. Sherrod and I have worked on this, but I'm going to endorse Sherrod's opponent. I'm going to try to work to get that Republican elected. Uh, nobody nobody doubts that. But at the same time, you have to do the business that the people sent you to do. You can't use partisan politics as an excuse to not do your job every election cycle because, I mean, hell, we're in an election cycle pretty much every year in this town.
4: So I have seen uh, some opposition in the House um, that we've looked a little bit about, Troy Niels and the other committee members. And this is where the bill probably will face most of its opposition from, again, inside the Republican Party. Now that President Trump has endorsed that, do you think that that will make a difference in the way that you can try and move this bill?
2: Well, it definitely makes a difference. The question is whether, you know, three months down the road after we've already had the debt ceiling fight and hopefully successfully resolved it. Mm. Uh, where, where are we actually at on railway safety? The, the, the one thing I've realized about this town, I'm a new guy, right? I've been here for five months, is that it's very important to get things done when the town's energy is focused on a particular issue. We were really focused on East Palestine two months ago. Yeah, that's right. We're a little focused on East Palestine today. I'm very focused on it, but the town is focused a little bit on it. Where are we at in three months? That to me is going to be the biggest hangup. Trump gave us a lot of momentum. The question is where do we actually land in a few months? There
1: will be another kind of uh, union railroad executive uh, contract struggle in a couple years from now. You you just missed, right? The last vote by a couple couple of weeks. I'm curious, but there was some hint that there might be some Republican support for the union for the rail workers. Are you sensing any more? Would and would you? Do you think you would? If you were in the Senate at the time, would you have voted with the with the workers? Do you think you would in the future if the contract fight comes to the Senate?
2: So one, I would have voted with the unions. Uh, two, to, to, you know, to his credit, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, a few others actually, actually yeah. aligned with the unions there, mm-hmm. which is, was, was exactly the right thing to do. Uh, look, whether you're, you you like the unions or you don't like the unions, it is not the job of the U.S. Senate to do a bailout of the rail industry by settling their labor dispute. It is between the union and the rail industry. Let them settle it. And this is one of the arguments I've actually made about this particular bill is if you're going to, as a U.S. Senate, as a U.S. Congress, bail the railways out of their labor disputes, you can't then come to me and cry free market when we try to force the railways to observe some proper safety standards. The, The other crazy thing about this is I can't think of any industry that has such a socialized risk gloss Mm. business model, if the rail industry crashes a train or sets off a chemical bomb in a place like East Palestine the taxpayers pick up a huge amount of that tab if we're going to pick up the tab we can demand some common sense safety standards well
4: Pharma would give them a run for their money so we're talking here about uh, railway and here is a bigger question I think and it kind of gets to the philosophy you referenced the debt ceiling fight and whether we're going to get through it before you walked in here President Trump actually endorsed saying if we don't cut spending and default how do you as a Republican who is you know I would say divorced at least somewhat from previous court conservative orthodoxy. How do you think about the debt ceiling and how do you think about spending?
2: Well, look, I mean, you know, I, I'm one of the few Republicans who during my campaign, you know, I, I, I endorsed critical parts of the social safety net. I've endorsed the idea that every American should have health care, though I may disagree with Bernie Sanders on how we actually get that done. Uh, but we we do have a massive problem of way too much money going into the economy, which is inflating the prices of a lot of things. And that's actually emmiserating a lot of people at the lower and middle income. So I, I, I actually do think uh, that we have to get some control of the federal budget here. Uh, and I think, look, Joe Biden doesn't like what McCarthy has done, okay? Uh, I guarantee you the 217 House Republicans who voted for what for McCarthy's package, every single one of them could have picked something that they didn't like about that package. But they at least have advanced a solution here. Uh, the thing that really bothers me about the president's posture is he sort of stepped back and say, said, my way or the highway, well, you can't do that. You have to negotiate with these guys. I think we have to cut spending uh, I think we, you know, basically the, the way that I think about it is 2019, the federal government spent $4.4 trillion. Uh, now we're talking about spending 6 to $7 trillion. We can get back to pre-COVID spending levels or something like it without causing emiseration of the poor. And that should be the goal. And Biden's response to Kevin McCarthy saying, isn't there anything
1: we can cut was like, hey, look, we can do more on, you know, Medicare, you know, prescription drug negotiation. Uh, There's corporate tax cuts, there's, I mean, there's, there's corporate tax cuts we could roll back, there's tax cuts for the wealthy we could roll back, where do you come down on that?
2: Look, I, I think everything should be on the table here. We have to pay the country's debts and everything should be on the table. Though I, I think it's interesting, President Trump during the town hall last night endorsed a negotiating posture, mm-hmm. uh, which which is fundamentally rooted in reality. I think the headline is President Trump gives financial advice. He's telling everybody, just go ahead and, and drive things off the cliff, allow the default. Sure. I didn't take that as what he was saying at all. He's, he's talking about the negotiating posture here. You have to be willing to go right to the end if you're in a game of chicken and so that, that, was, that was sort of how I took that. But look, I mean, if McCarthy and Biden come up with a deal, that is the deal that's going to work for the American people. The, the one thing that the Senate, at least Senate Republicans, have been pretty consistent on is, look, we don't control the this, this system, right? We are, we are the minority party in the Senate this fundamentally has to be, be negotiation between McCarthy and Biden. The deal they come up with is fundamentally the deal that's going to pay the country's debts.
4: Final question for me, JD. Uh, president Trump, the big town hall. We're spending a bunch of our show on it. Uh, there's a lot of hand wringing in this Washington, in, Washington and in New York City today about democracy. All that you've endorsed President Trump. Anything changed uh, from the town hall, from the Eugene Carroll, and all of that as to your posture towards the president?
2: No, nothing's changed. I have you know went on to CNN last night, first time mm-hmm. I've been on CNN in a while, and mm-hmm. uh, and and gave a full. Wrote an endorsement of the president. I th- thought he did a very good job. W- what I really liked last night is that was Trump in his b- very best. He was funny. This town is absurd. A lot of what goes on here is absurd. The people who are sort of pearl clutching and talking about the end of democracy, they're the ones who are going to drive this country off a cliff because everybody else looks at this and says, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. We should be able to make fun of it. And I think having a little bit of self-awareness and a little bit of humor makes it easier to govern, not harder.
4: Well, I think the audience mm-hmm. agreed with you. As we kept saying, <laughs> Republican voters like Trump. I certainly guess that, o- you,
2: that particular audience. That particular definitely. audience. That, right? that audience right? liked him,
4: yeah. <laughs> I meant that audience, not necessarily <laughs> yes. our audience. I'm sure you'll get some hate, but I do too. So it is what it is. Thank you so very much for joining us, sir. We really appreciate your Good time. to see you guys. Thank you. Ryan, by the way, I thought you did a great job in that interview. Thank you. I oh, appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I, w- I just want to say, oh, mm-hmm.
1: go ahead. No, we, I, we, yeah. were, we were talking just before that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if he would remember it or not. In like, when, whenever he was, fi- he had finished up Hillbilly, mm-hmm. he had come to the Huffington Post to promote it. Yeah. Uh, and Ariana was like, you need to talk to J.D. Van. <laughs> he's such a wonderful young man. And, yeah. And we had a long phone call where I gave him. Uh, tips on how to promote the book really yeah interesting yeah. well it worked out and, for him
4: huh it's and uh and
1: then it was like, like six months later the thing's like yeah. a national bestseller. i'm like well go. obviously those tips worked
4: right yeah, yeah. exactly it's all right yeah. grim that's yeah. why yeah. jd vance is in the senate. I want to say thank you man for sitting in. You and Emily are such a fantastic addition to the team. You guys do a really great job. It's I really a, love it. It's a great time.
1: It's a great time. How was the uh how was the right wing show? Oh, on? we
4: we loved yeah. it. Well, I wasn't yeah. right wing. I'm the liberal. There you go. According yes. to my maga critics, <laughs> I am the liberal here on the show. You can never please these people, which is why you shouldn't even try. There uh, you go. Anyway, look, thank you to everybody who helps support the show. Helps uh, you know, helps support the work that we do we're building this new studio. We had Senator Vance here. I look at that CNN town hall and I I look at something that I don't want that to be only in the domain of cable. That's got to be in the domain of people like us for the ability to convene. We have RFK Jr. hopefully right here in the studio at the desk that will be able to question him and treat him in a professional way, but in a challenging way if possible. We
1: should pack it with RFK Jr. fans. Yeah, that's
4: right. We should have only RFK (laughs) Jr. fans here. But my point is, is that there's no reason why they need to be ones making news. It can be all of us. So help you su- help us support our work breakingpoints.com and otherwise we'll see you all next week. See you then.